0: Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether or not the past actually exists. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. The Global Priorities Institute at Oxford University has led to some of our most popular episodes in the past, uh, thanks to Hilary Graves and Will McCaskill. Uh, And in this episode, we are back for more fundamental thinking about what matters most with their colleague Christian Tarsney. I was slightly worried that this episode would end up being a bit too technical, uh, but Christian turned out to be a, uh, a really great communicator, uh, and he was able to zero in on the, on the parts of his papers uh, that really matter uh, to those of us who are trying to make the world a better place. Most importantly, I think this episode may contain a real potential solution uh, to the problem of fanaticism and Pascal's mugging cases, uh, as they're called, which have uh, over the years uh, been used to challenge the merit of using expected value uh, to make decisions in, in high-stakes situations. I came into this interview not really understanding Christian's research, uh, but left able to explain it to my housemates, uh, which counts as serious progress in my mind. As always, we've got links to learn much more uh, on the page associated with this episode, uh, as well as a transcript and summary of the key points. If your podcasting software allows it, we also support chapters, uh, so you can skip to whichever part of the conversation interests you the most. Without further ado, here's Christian Tarsney. Today, I'm speaking with Christian Tarsney. Christian is a philosopher at Oxford University's Global Priorities Institute, where he works with previous guests from the show, Hilary Graves and Will McCaskill. He did his PhD at the University of Maryland on how to make rational decisions when you're uncertain about fundamental ethical principles. And his research interests include ethics and decision theory, as well as effective altruism and political philosophy. He's published papers on, among many other things, the use of discount rates of climate policy and our attitudes towards past and future experiences. Fun stuff. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Christian. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. I hope to get to talk about uh, moral fanaticism and epistemic challenges that people have made to long-termism. But first, what are you working on at the moment, and why do you think it's important?
1: So broadly, I'm a researcher in philosophy at the Global Priorities Institute, and we are trying to build a field of of global priorities research, which means thinking about how altruistically motivated agents should use their resources to do the most good, and more specifically, what causes or problems they, they should focus on. And at the moment, we're focused on building that field in philosophy and economics and trying to sort of recruit the tools of those disciplines to answer questions that we think are really important. So, of course, why we think this is important, well, if we can uh, come up with better answers to these questions, then hopefully that'll influence uh, what people actually do when they're deciding where to allocate their resources. Uh, I think as a philosopher, you always have this sort of background worry, you know, are we actually improving our understanding of anything or are we just sort of spinning our wheels? But optimistically, I think uh, we've made some progress and are continuing to make progress, and they're sort of low-hanging fruit because not a lot of people have thought really explicitly about this question of how to use resources to do the most good and how to prioritize among the many things that seem sort of important and pressing. More specifically, my own research interests. At the moment, uh, I have a few things on my plate, but, but the things that are really gripping me, number one are sort of epistemic issues to do with predicting and predictably influencing the far future. So insofar as at least one of the most important things uh, we want to do with our resources is make the world a better place in the very long term, we want to be able to predict the long-term effects of our actions. And we just have very little empirical information on our ability to predict or predictably influence the future on the scale of, say, centuries or millennia. It's hard to see how we could have that data. And so we have to do some sort of a priori uh, speculating or modeling to try to figure out how we can do this well. And then the sort of second related question that I'm interested in is, well, suppose it turns out that we have a sort of limited ability to predict the far future, but we have enough that in expectation, the far future really matters. So, So we can make a big difference to the expected value of the far future. But most of that expected value comes from tiny probabilities of having enormous, really persistent effects. Should we just sort of naively maximize expected value in those situations, or are there some other decision rules that apply when we're dealing with those sort of extreme probabilities? So those are two problems that seem uh, sort of pressing uh, from the same way to cost prioritization and also neglected and, and uh, hopefully tractable to the tools of philosophy and economics.
0: Beautiful. All right. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll return to uh, all of these issues that you raised through the course of the conversation and also check in on how the field of global priorities research is going later on. But let's waste no time at getting into an interesting uh, philosophical issue that you've uh, looked into in the past, which is called future bias. You've got two papers out on this topic called, Thank Goodness That's Newcomb, The Practical Relevance of the Temporal Value Asymmetry, and Future Bias in Action, Does the Past Matter More When You Can Affect It? First off, what is future bias for people who are not familiar with it?
1: So broadly, uh, future bias or the bias towards the future or the temporal value asymmetry is this phenomenon that people seem to care more about their future experiences than their past experiences. And that means, among other things, that you'd prefer all else being equal to have a pleasant or a positive experience in the future rather than the past, and a painful or a negative experience in the past rather than the future. So there's a number of, of, uh, sort of cases or thought experiments that illustrate this, but a famous one from Derek Parfit, it's called My Past and Future Operations. So he says, imagine that you're going to the hospital for an operation, and the operation requires you to be conscious, uh, and it'll be very painful but they'll give you a drug afterwards where you'll sort of temporarily forget about it. So when you wake up after the operation, you won't immediately remember that it's happened. And so you wake up in the hospital and you can't remember whether you've had the operation and you call a nurse and the nurse comes over and you say, have I had my operation yet? And they look and at the foot of your bed, there are two different charts for two patients. And they say, well, you're one of these two. I I don't know which one is you. One of these patients had a three hour operation uh, yesterday. And it was very long and painful and difficult, but it was a complete success. And that patient will be fine going forward. The other patient is due to have a one-hour operation later today, which will be much less painful and also expected to turn out well and so forth. And the question is, which patient would you rather be? And most people have the intuition that you would rather be the patient who had the three-hour operation yesterday rather than the one-hour operation later today, because then the pain is in the past. Yeah. So what's sort of odd about this is, of course, normally we prefer less pain rather than more pain. In this case, we prefer more pain just because the pain would be in the past rather than the future.
0: Yeah. So that feels very intuitive, I think, to, to most people that that would rather have had bad experiences in the past than have uh, bad experiences coming up. What's problematic about it? Is there some tension between that and maybe like other beliefs or commitments that we have?
1: Yeah. So a few arguments potentially can be made for the irrationality of future bias. One is just that the sort of burden of proof is on the person who wants to defend or justify future bias to explain what's the sort of relevant difference between the past and the future, such that we should care more about the one than the other. And it turns out that this is just sort of surprisingly difficult to do. So you can sort of contest that the burdens of proof actually go that way. But for instance, there's this famous argument from Parfit called Future Tuesday Indifference. He says, look, just imagine someone who... Is normal in every respect, except that they don't care about what happens to them on future Tuesdays. So if they can have, you know, a one-hour operation next Monday or a three-hour operation next Tuesday, they'll opt for the three-hour operation just because it's on a Tuesday. And we clearly think there's something sort of normatively defective about that person. I think many of us would be inclined to say they're they're irrational just because something's on a future Tuesday. Why is that a reason to care about it less? So similarly, just because an event is in the past, why should we care about it less?
0: Okay, I guess I feel like it, it seems very natural that humans would have this intuition, or that we would have kind of evolved or learned this intuition, because our past experiences, having already happened and not really being changeable and not going to happen again, it seems like you can't really have any causal effect on them. So to some extent, it's kind of water under the bridge, and it makes practical sense to kind of ignore ignore the past, or I mean, maybe maybe learn from the past, but to ignore things that happened to you in the past because you're not going to be able to affect them in the same way that you can something else that might happen in future. Is that a good enough reason not to worry about them? Or maybe is it that it's a good reason to to not worry too much about the future. But in as much as in this hypothetical kind of, in these like odd scenarios that we paint, where you kind of can in some sense have an effect on the the past, those are cases where you should worry, but your intuitions are getting polluted by this, like by the normal thing where the past is unaffectable.
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of people do take the view that our inability to affect the past has something sort of centrally to do with our indifference toward past experiences. And actually in this paper, Future Bias in Action, uh, recently published by myself and some collaborators at the University of Sydney, we tried to sort of test this experimentally. And we found that in fact, when you ask people to imagine hypothetical scenarios where they can affect their own past experiences, they care about their past experiences more, which suggests that Your inability to affect the past is one reason why you sort of feel indifferent to it. But at the same time, if we're asking the sort of normative question, should we be indifferent to the past, then there are various reasons to think that our inability to affect the past is not a reason to sort of judge that our past experiences don't matter as much as our future experiences. So for instance, if that were true, then you should similarly be sort of indifferent to inevitable future experiences. If you know for sure that something bad is going to happen to you tomorrow, you shouldn't care about it, and in fact, we don't have that kind of attitude, so that seems like at least a kind of inconsistency
0: yeah, so if, if I recall from that experiment that you did the unaffectability of the past explained part of people's different reactions, yeah, but then when you when you got rid of the or you tried to like equalize the unaffectability, then there, there was still some future bias present.
1: Yeah, that's right. So what we end up concluding in that paper is there are probably multiple explanations for future bias. The other explanation that people have sort of prominently proposed is that we care more about the future because we have this sort of intuitive belief that we're moving through time. Um, in some sense, that's sort of hard to explicate, but we we have this intuition that we're moving away from the past and towards the future, and your future experiences are sort of ahead of you rather than behind you, and that that makes it rational to care more about the future than the past.
0: So it's like time is kind of playing like a videotape, and the things that haven't played yet are kind of still coming up, and so you can still experience that pain, whereas the stuff in the past is kind of somehow irrelevant or just like wiped off of the ethical picture somehow.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it turns out to be just very hard to explain. Well, first of all, this idea of moving through time or time having a direction or a flow. And then second, to explain why that should make it rational to care less about the past than the future in a way that doesn't just become a roundabout way of saying, well, the past is in the past and the future is in the future. (laughs) but a lot of people do see uh, an intuitive connection here, uh, including me.
0: Yeah. Okay. It sounds like we might have to take a detour into the philosophy of time or like understand what different models people have of the nature of time and the present in order to dissect whether this this idea makes any sense. Do you want to give an intro to that?
1: Sure. So the central debate in the philosophy of time over the last hundred years or so is whether this idea of time moving or flowing or us uh, moving from the past towards the future corresponds to any sort of objective feature of reality. And this is a debate that's also playing out, for instance, in physics. It's something that our best physical theories maybe give us some indications one way or another, but don't seem to settle. And so you have physicists as well as philosophers on, on either side of this debate. And various arguments have been have been proposed either way. But the well, the debate is still is still very much unsettled. And it's also a little bit unclear exactly what the debate is is about. So, you know, one thing, for instance, that people seem to disagree about is the present moment, the now. Uh, is there one moment in time that sort of objectively now and that moves from earlier times towards later times? Or is it just that? for instance, the current time slice of me happens to be located at this location in time. And when I say now, well, now just works like here. It's a way of indicating the place in time where I happen to be located. So that's at least sort of one aspect of this debate that people have tried to get a handle on.
0: Right. I don't know that much about the philosophy of time, but uh, I think my, my part of understanding is that this kind of Three big theories that people put forward with different levels of plausibility. Like one is, I think, presentism, which you were describing, which is like only the present instant is actual, I think is the term that people use. I'm not, I guess I'm not entirely sure what actual means in this context. And I mean that's probably what people debate a lot. We got like kind of only the present instant is actual. Then you've got, was it the growing block theory of time where? all of the past exists or is actual because that has kind of been locked in because it's already happened. And maybe, and I guess the the present instant exists as well. And and kind of that instant is just constantly being added to this like recording of of time that that gets locked in. But in that one, the future isn't yet actual. And then I guess you have eternalism, which is the idea that both the past, the present and the future are all actual to the same degree. It's just that we happen to be like, you know, my my present self happens to be passing through this, this instant, but all of them exist in some sense. And I guess on that view, that there would be symmetry between things that happened in the past and things that happen in the future and, and how ethically weighty they are.
1: Yeah, that's basically right. But there are sort of two separate debates here that are worth teasing apart. So one is about what philosophers call the ontology of time. So what moments in time or parts of time exist? And that's the the debate that you were describing. And if you're a presentist or a growing block theorist, then you're basically committed to the passage of time and, and uh, the movement from the past to the future being in some sense sort of objectively real. But if you take this other view, eternalism, you think the past, the present, and the future are all equally real. That doesn't necessarily commit you one way or another on this debate about the passage of time. So you can still believe that, well, the past and the future are are real, but the present is still uniquely and objectively present. It has some, some special status. So there's what people call the moving spotlight theory, which says there is this sort of eternal block of time, past, present, and future events, all sort of existing, but one moment in the block is illuminated at any given moment, and that's the present.
0: Hmm. I see. Interesting.
1: I guess on on the
0: growing block model, where what actually exists uh, in this ontological sense is kind of increasing as time passes, that would seem to suggest in some way that maybe you'd care more about the past, right? Because the, the past is kind of actual and locked in, whereas the future is this like ethereal thing that hasn't happened yet. I guess maybe you could say there's a symmetry if the future like will happen, so at some point it will matter. But, like, <laughs> but in as much as it's uncertain, the past matters potentially even more.
1: Yeah, this is something that philosophers have remarked on repeatedly. And One thing that people often say is kind of surprising that nobody defends a shrinking block theory that says the present and the future are real and the past isn't, given that that would be a really neat explanation for why the future matters more than the past. But interestingly, we have on the one hand this very strong intuition that the future matters more than the past. And on the other hand, many people have the intuition that the past is sort of real in a way that the future isn't. So
0: what kind of resolutions have people proposed to this and and how do they interact with like people's broader philosophical attempts to make sense of the nature of time?
1: Yeah, well, so there's an ongoing debate, as, as there uh, usually is in, in philosophy, about whether the bias towards the future is rational or irrational, and maybe in a, at a finer level of grain, whether it's rationally required to care more about the future or rationally required to be neutral between different times, or you're just sort of rationally permitted to do whatever you want. And the kind of latest set of moves in this debate have involved pointing out various ways in which whether you care about the past or not can affect your choices. So the kind of obvious boring case is, well, what if there's backward time travel and you could actually retrocausally affect your past experiences? But there are other sort of interesting cases. So for instance, if you are risk averse, then whether you're biased towards the future or not can make a difference to your choices because whether one option is riskier or less risky than another can depend on whether you're counting the stuff in the past that's sort of already baked in. That might, for instance, be correlated in certain ways with what's going to happen in the future.
0: Another approach that one might take to this would be to reject what you were saying earlier, that the burden of proof is on the, the person who says that they care more about the future. And you might say, well, maybe this is just like, rather than being something that seems more irrational, like the Future Tuesday case, where you just, for some Reason that you can't explain, don't care about Tuesdays. So this is more like a taste thing, where it's like I like apples, but I don't like oranges. Where where we don't think that you have like a special burden of proof. It's it's more just a matter of taste and a matter of personal preference. Is it plausible to run that line of argument that it's just like personally, you know, I just care about the future and I don't care about the past, and uh, that's that's just how I am, and I don't have to don't have to justify myself.
1: I think that's plausible. There are a couple arguments you could mount against it. So one question or complication is whether the bias towards the future also affects your sort of other-regarding or altruistic preferences. So this is something people seem to have different intuitions about. Some people think that the bias towards the future is sort of exclusively first-personal. So when I'm thinking about other people's experiences, people I care about, I don't particularly care whether their pain is in the past or the future. You can sort of manipulate people's intuitions about this. So if you think about someone sort of far away on the other side of the world, Maybe it doesn't seem to matter that much whether their pain, you know, happened yesterday or tomorrow. But if it's, say, your partner who you live with, you'll sort of feel better if they've already had their, their painful operation yesterday rather than today. And of course, if you are biased towards the future, at least in some sort of other regarding or altruistic cases, then it seems like there's a kind of higher burden of justification. It can't just be your personal preference that their pains be in the past rather than the future. There's also the set of ways in which the bias towards the future might affect your choices. So for instance, if you're biased towards the future and risk averse in a particular way, you can be money pumped. So you can make choices that will result in you being definitely worse off than you otherwise might have been. And you might think any pattern of preferences that allows you to be money pumped is ipso facto irrational and not just sort of a matter of taste.
0: Yeah. Can you explain this concept of money pumping? I guess it shows up a lot in this discussion of like ethics and decision theory and rationality and so on, but I think probably not not everyone has heard the idea.
1: Yeah. So a money pump basically is a sequence of choices where, well, an agent with particular dispositions will choose a series of options that leave her definitely worse off than some other series of options might have. So the kind of classic example is if you have cyclic preferences, if I have well, apples and and oranges and bananas, and I prefer an apple to an orange and an orange to a banana and a banana to an apple. Then, uh, well, you can say I have an apple, and you can say, well, I'll trade you your apple for a banana if you pay me one cent, right? And I take that deal because I prefer bananas. And then you say, well, I'll give you an orange in exchange for that banana if you give me one cent. And similarly, then I can get you to sort of trade back for the apple and and. You've gotten three cents out of me and I'm just stuck with the apple that I had in the first place. Yeah. So all sorts of patterns of preference can give rise to these uh, sequences of choices that leave you definitely worse off.
0: Yeah. Sometimes people will defend that it's acceptable in some way to hold a position where you can be like money pumped uh, or like often in philosophy, you face unpleasant trade-offs. You've got to choose a position that has like one weakness or a position that has another weakness. And this is kind of one of the weaknesses that a view might have is that it's vulnerable to money pumping. And that's it's an undesirable property, but not necessarily a completely decisive one if every other option also has some unpleasant side effects.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. There's plenty of debate about how decisive money pumps should be. I think one distinction that's worth making is between what are sometimes called forcing versus non-forcing money pumps. Mm-hmm. So some things like having incomplete preferences. You know, if I prefer apples to bananas, but oranges are just sort of incomparable to both. I have no preference between apples or bananas and oranges then it seems sort of naively like it's rationally permissible for me to make a series of choices that'll leave me worse off. But it's also rationally permissible for me to not do that. And you can say, well, there's just this extra rule of rationality that says, I shouldn't do the sequence of things that that will constitute a money pump. But in other cases, like the transitivity case, your preferences seem to sort of commit you or force you to do the thing that leaves you definitely worse off. And it seems at least intuitively compelling that having preferences that that force you or commit you to make yourself definitely worse off, that that's at least a sort of significant theoretical cost.
0: Yeah, something more seriously problematic there.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, so we've, we've just discussed a couple of different approaches that people might take to resolve this issue or a couple of different positions that people might take. How do people respond to a kind of time travel case where you imagine a world where time travel is just like literally possible, you can go back into the past and change how things went and then make people experience less suffering in the past? Does that tend to make a big difference to people's attitude to how important the past is?
1: Well, so this is what we investigated in uh, this paper, Future Bias in Action, and and we found that it does to some extent. So it doesn't, in aggregate, make people perfectly time neutral. People still, on average, care more about the future than the past, but the asymmetry becomes weaker when you consider backwards time travel cases.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I guess it's a bit hard to know how to concretize the time travel case because you imagine like okay so you can go back in time and then like run things again and have them go better but then i'm like does that mean it's happened twice does it now get like double value or or am i like erasing the original run through and causing it not to have had any moral consequences almost raising like as many questions as it as it answers
1: yeah I, i mean definitely your your theory of time travel makes a difference here you might think well if you Think of backward time travel in a way where events, say, happened the first time around in the past, but then you can go back and erase them. There's this additional question, do the events that you erased still matter, or are they no longer part of the timeline or something like that? I think it's fair to say most philosophers are inclined to think of time travel insofar as it's metaphysically possible, is that there has to be sort of one consistent timeline. And so anything that you do... If you go back into the past was already sort of part of the past. but you might have sort of limited information. So, so the case that we described in our experiment, for instance, you know that you were tortured for some period of time in the past, but you don't remember exactly how long you were tortured or how many times you were subjected to an electric shock. And you have the opportunity to, to affect that retrocausally to determine whether you had a thousand shocks or a thousand and ten shocks or something like that. Uh, but you know that you know you're not erasing the past. You're just influencing what the past already was.
0: Philosophers think that, like time travel, or I guess like physicists think that time travel is kind of conceptually possible, or like I guess I should say retrocausal, <laughs> retrocausality is possible. But you need to have a self-consistent loop mm-hmm. where the past affects the present, causes the present to cause the past, and then you've got like a self-consistent like series of causes that that all fit together like puzzle pieces. Uh, is that? I mean, I don't know whether you're an expert in the philosophy of time travel, but is that a, is is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm not particularly, and I'm venturing a little bit outside my area of expertise. But general relativity has solutions that involve backwards time travel, where you have what are called closed time-like curves, such as things moving into their own past. But yeah, those solutions all involve one self-consistent timeline rather than, for instance, branching timelines or or you know erasing events that originally happened in the past or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I think this comes up in not just philosophy because uh, there's like some theories within physics of like uh, at the subatomic level you could end up with retrocausal stuff, and then you want to like figure out well is that self consistent in a way, or is is that is that going to violate some other fundamental principle of physics? Okay, coming back to future bias though, let's talk about the interaction between future bias and, and decision theory, uh, which is something that you looked into. First off, for people who aren't familiar, uh, what is decision theory uh, in brief? If it's possible to do this one in brief,
1: sure. So. Decision theory is uh, the theory of how people either do or should make decisions. So descriptive decision theory studies how people do make decisions. Normative decision theory studies how they should make decisions. There are a number of questions that decision theorists ask. So there's no sort of one question that centrally characterizes the discipline. One major question is how we respond to risk or uncertainty. So for instance, should we maximize expected value or expected utility or are we allowed to be sort of risk-averse in ways that that, uh, violate the axioms of expected utility theory? There's also this sort of famous debate between evidential decision theorists and causal decision theorists about how to act in cases where your choices give you some information about the pre-existing state of the world.
0: Yeah, is is there a simple thought experiment that kind of elucidates the difference between evidential and causal decision theory?
1: Yeah, so the classic case is called Newcomb's problem. The idea is that There's a predictor who's just uh, very good at analyzing human motivation, say, and predicting human choices. And the predictor presents you with the following choice. There are two boxes in front of you. One of them is transparent, and you can see it contains $1,000. The other box is opaque, and what the predictor tells you is your options are either to take just the opaque box and get whatever is inside there, or the opaque box and the transparent box together. But if I predicted that you would take both boxes, then I left the opaque box empty. And if I predicted that you would take only the opaque box, I put a million dollars inside. So evidential decision theorists say, well, if the predictor is really that great, either they're infallible at predicting my choices or they're just very, very good. Then if I take the opaque box, that tells me that the predictor certainly or almost certainly predicted that I would do that and put a million dollars inside. So I end up with a million dollars. Whereas if I take both boxes, then I'll only end up with $1,000 because the predictor won't have put the $1,000 inside. Whereas a causal decision theorist says, okay, but your choice makes no difference causally to whether there's a million dollars in the opaque box or not. There either is or there isn't. Um, And in either case, taking both boxes leaves you $1,000 richer than you would have been had you taken only the opaque box. So the rational thing to do is take both boxes. Yeah,
0: I think a thought experiment that feels more intuitively and a bit less like sci-fi to me is I think the smokers' lesion problem, where say so we find out that like a large part of the reason why smokers tend to die young isn't just that they're smoking, it's that there's some correlation, say genetically, between people who are predisposed to enjoy smoking and have a compulsion to smoke and people who happen to have a genetic predisposition to having brain lesions that then can kill them later in life. And so in that case you've got this question, if you smoke, if you find that you enjoy smoking and want to smoke and decide to smoke, that gives you evidence that you're more likely to have this deadly brain lesion disease, say, for some genetic correlation reason. But then should you take that into account in your decision on whether to smoke, it lowers your life expectancy, but not kind of causally through the smoking. It's just because the smoking gives you evidence about something else about yourself. And it's kind of a bit of a puzzle. Smoking like lowers your life expectancy more than does it does causally. And should should you therefore like use that? And that one is like, I feel like it's more intuitive because it doesn't require anything that's like really outside of what we're what we're used to experiencing.
1: Yeah, the, the smoking lesion case, that's the sort of classic counterexample to evidential decision theory, because, mm. uh, well, I, I always uh, find it hard to sort of remember what the right intuition is supposed to be here. But most people sort of intuit that the rational thing to do is is to smoke because it doesn't cause cancer. It just gives you information that you're more likely to to have cancer. But there are some sort of complications about the case that make it uh, possible for evidential decision theorists to try to sort of explain it away.
0: Yeah, we'll stick out some links to to decision theory stuff for people who are interested. What's the interaction between future bias and decision theory that that, that you've looked into?
1: Well, so the particular connection that I've explored in this paper, Thank Goodness That's Newcomb, is that if you're an evidential decision theorist, then whether you do or don't care about the past can affect your choices in ways that don't require exotic backwards time travel Mm. or or retrocausation or anything like that. Mm. So... I imagine basically a a variant of the Newcomb case where the predictor kidnaps you and and subjects you to electric shocks for a period of time. And then they give you the option at the end to uh, shock yourself one more time before you're released. But they made a prediction, you know, in advance about whether you would choose to give yourself that final shock. And if they predicted that you would, they shocked you uh, fewer times, say, over the last week that they were holding you and torturing you. And if they predicted that you wouldn't, they shocked you more times. (laughs) And of course, if you're an evidential decision theorist and you're time neutral, you want to minimize the total number of shocks you've ever experienced, and so you'll choose to shock yourself now. But if you're either a causal decision theorist or you're biased towards the future, then you would not choose to shock yourself. Okay, what should we make of that? Well, one thing you could make of it is that this is one more case where evidential decision theory tells us something silly, and so we should be causal decision theorists. Hmm. Of course, then you can sort of rerun a similar case, which is basically what we did in this experimental paper, where you use backwards time travel rather than predictors uh, to give people the option of affecting their own past experiences. And many of the same sort of philosophical issues come up. My take in the original paper was that our intuitions about the sort of irrelevance or you know, our indifference towards our past experiences don't change very much when we're considering these cases where we can quote unquote affect our past experiences or our choices give us evidence of, about our past experiences. So my own take was that this sort of undercuts the idea that the reason we don't care about the past is because it's practically irrelevant. But then this experimental paper that we did actually finds that people do change their intuitions or their judgments, at least on average in these cases. So my own philosophical take turned out to be, uh, well, undercut anyway by our experimental results. Interesting. Yeah, I feel in that case, I have the intuition that you
0: want to do the thing that reduces the total amount of electric shocks over all periods of time, which I guess is what you found other people felt, at least to some degree and i wonder whether there's something that's going on where it kind of depends on whether you're thinking about it from the prudential selfish perspective of you at this instant in time or whether you're thinking about like what would be a better world all things considered and it seems like what would be a better world all things considered is less torture in total maybe like what's best for me right now uh, <laughs> is uh, is like minimizing the amount of like future torture that i'm going to experience but then it seems like maybe we're like running up against like a tension between like our prudential perspective and then our ethical commitments. And this is creating like a tension that we somehow have to resolve.
1: Yeah, that could be. So if you think that we are generally sort of time neutral when we're thinking about other people, and then in this case, you can kind of put on your impartial altruist hat when thinking about your past self and just sort of treat them as another person that you're concerned with, then maybe that is one reason why you would be more inclined to accept additional future pain to avoid a greater amount of past pain. But it is, as I as I mentioned earlier, sort of non-obvious whether we're generally time-neutral when we're thinking about other people. So one view you could take that's not completely counterintuitive is, well, the past as a whole is just sort of dead and gone, you know, not just my experiences, but other people's experiences. And so what we should be thinking about is, as altruists is not making the world as a whole across all of time and space, a better place, but making the future better, because that's what's sort of still out there to be experienced.
0: Okay, I want to push on from this in in just a second. But it sounded like earlier, you were saying that kind of the the growing block theory and presentism and eternalism were kind of all still like philosophically acceptable. And like, are advocates for all of them in in philosophy and physics. I kind of understood that there was like some thought experiments that had made eternalism, the idea that both the past, the present and the future are all actually in some sense to be a a more dominant view, at least among physicists anyway. Have I misunderstood
1: that? I think you're probably right that it's more dominant among physicists and probably even more dominant among philosophers, although all these views still have active defenders maybe the sort of most powerful argument that has convinced a lot of people is just that a sort of naive picture of time where there's an objective present moment and sort of moving from the past towards the future requires that you be able to sort of chop the universe into time slices in a sort of objective way where we can say all of these events at all these different locations across the universe those are the ones that are present right now
0: was simultaneous
1: right but but special relativity teaches us that actually whether two events uh, at different locations are simultaneous with each other depends on basically how fast you're moving, right? So two people in motion relative to each other will disagree about which events are simultaneous. And so it sort of looks, at least in relativistic physics, like there just couldn't be a sort of privileged plane of simultaneity that, you know, all of those events are are present and nothing else is.
0: Yeah, I think that this shows up in ethics elsewhere when you're thinking about the ethics of the future, right? Because you can end up with these funny cases where uh, someone who like cares less about the future, say, because you ask them like, how much, you know, would you pay to prevent something terrible happening in, in a thousand years? And they say, well, not very much because it's so far away in the future. Then you do something where it's like you send them away at almost light speed and then they can come back in what is to them only a few minutes or you know only a few hours and then arrive in effect a thousand years in the future in this other location. And then that terrible thing happens. And you're like, what is the amount of time that's passed? Because this all depends on the speed that you were going at and what 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 you traveled. So if this is like only a few hours away from your perspective, does that mean that the thousand-year thing doesn't matter? Yeah. <laughs> it it yeah. introduces like this this peculiar kind of inconsistency.
1: Yeah, I think that's one very good argument against what's called pure time preference. I mean, thinking that that the mere passage of time or mere distance in time has uh, ethical significance.
0: All right. We'll put up a link to this paper so people can explore more if if they would like. I'm sure there's there's plenty more in there. Is there anything that people should take away in their practical life or you know, decision-making altruistically from these past, present, future like ethical comparison cases?
1: I think there's two things that are worth mentioning. One is altruistically significant, which is if you think that one of the things we should care about as altruists is whether people's desires or preferences are satisfied uh, or whether people's goals are realized, then... One important question is, do we care about the realization of people's past goals, including the goals of past people, you know, people who are who are dead now? Uh, and if so, that might have various kinds of ethical significance. For instance, I think, if, if I recall correctly, Toby Ord in The Precipice makes this point that, well, past people are engaged in this sort of great human project of trying to build and preserve human civilization, and if we allowed ourselves to go extinct— we would be letting them down or failing to carry on their project. Mm. And whether you think that that consideration has sort of normative significance might depend on whether you think the the past as a whole sort of has normative significance.
0: Yeah, that adds another wrinkle that I guess you could think that the past matters. But perhaps if you only cared about experiences, say, then obviously people in the past can't have different experiences because of things in the future. At least we, at least we think not. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of you have to think that the kind of fixed in preference states that they had in their minds in the past, it's still good to actualize those preferences in the future, even though it can't affect their mind in the past.
1: Yeah, that's right. So you could think that we should be future biased only with respect to experiences and not with respect to preference satisfaction. But then that's a little bit hard to square if you think that The sort of justification for future bias is the sort of deep metaphysical feature of time that somehow, you know, the past is dead and gone. Well, why should that affect the importance of experiences but not preferences? Another reason why the bias towards the future might be sort of practically interesting or significant to people, less from an altruistic standpoint than from a sort of personal or individual standpoint, is this connection uh, with our attitudes towards death, which is maybe sort of the original context in which philosophers thought about The bias towards the future. So there's this famous argument that goes back to Epicurus and and Lucretius that says, look, the sort of natural reason that people give for fearing death is that death marks a sort of foundry of of your life. And after you're dead, you don't get to have any any more experiences, and that's bad. But you could say exactly the same thing about birth, right? So before you were born, you didn't have any experiences. And well, on the one hand, if you know that you're going to die in five years, right, you might be very upset about that. But if you're five years old and you know that five years ago you didn't exist, people don't tend to be very upset about that. And if you, sort of, if you think that the past and the future should be on a par, that there's no fundamental asymmetry between those two directions in time, one conclusion that people have argued for is maybe we should be sort of sanguine about the future, including sanguine about our own mortality, in the same way that we're sanguine about the past and sanguine about the fact that we haven't existed forever which I'm not sure if I can sort of get myself into the headspace of really internalizing that attitude. But I I think is a reasonably compelling argument and and something that uh, maybe some people can do better than I at at really uh, internalizing that.
0: I feel like that was easy to resolve because I'm just like, yeah, it's terrible I didn't used to exist. It's terrible that I was born as late as I was. I should have been born a billion years earlier and lived lived the entire (laughs) length of it. But there's not much I can do about that. You know, I can go to the gym and try to live longer, but I can't go to the gym and try to be born earlier. So it's kind of water under the bridge. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. That 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 could be the conclusion you reach too. All right,
0: we'll stick up links to those papers, and people can dig in if they'd like to learn more. Let's move on and talk about a problem in moral philosophy known as fanaticism. Yeah, what is the problem of fanaticism for those who are not familiar?
1: So roughly the problem is that if you are an expected value maximizer, which means that when you're making choices, you just evaluate an option by taking all the possible outcomes and you assign them numeric values, like the quantity of of value or goodness that would be realized in this outcome. And then you just take a probability weighted sum, you know, the probability times the value for each of the possible outcomes and add those all up. And that tells you how good the option is. Well, if you make decisions like that, then you can end up preferring options that give you only a very tiny chance of an astronomically good outcome over options that give you certainty of a very good outcome. Or you can prefer certainty of a bad outcome over an option that gives you near certainty of a very good outcome, but just a tiny, tiny, tiny probability of an astronomically bad outcome. And a lot of people sort of find this counterintuitive.
0: So the basic thing is that very unlikely outcomes that are massive in their magnitude that would be much more important than the other outcomes in some sense end up kind of dominating the entire expected value calculation and dominating your decision, even though they're incredibly improbable. And that just feels kind of like intuitively wrong and unappealing.
1: Well, here's, here's an example that I find sort of drives home the intuition. So suppose that you have the opportunity to really sort of control the fate of the universe. You have two options. You have a safe option, That will ensure that the universe contains, you know, over its whole history, a trillion happy people with very good lives. Or you have the option to take a gamble. And the way the gamble works is almost certainly uh, the outcome will be very bad. So there will be a trillion unhappy people or a trillion people with, you know, say, hellish suffering. But there's some teeny, teeny, tiny probability, say one in a Google, 10 to the minus 100, that you get a blank check where you can just produce any finite number of happy people you want. Just fill in a number. And if you're trying to maximize the expected quantity of happiness or the expected number of happy people in the world, of course you want to do that second thing. But there is, in addition to just the sort of uh, counterintuitiveness of it, there is a thought like, well, what we care about is the actual outcome of our choices, you know, not the expectation. And, you know, if you take the risky option and the thing that's almost certainly going to happen happens, which is you get a very terrible outcome, the fact that it was good in expectation doesn't give you any consolation or doesn't seem to sort of retrospectively justify your choice at all.
0: Yeah, I think this can show up in other ways as well. One that jumps to mind is the dominant view among people who study this kind of thing is that insects probably aren't conscious. And if they are conscious, they're probably not very conscious, but we're not super sure about that. So, you know, maybe there's a one in a thousand chance that, you know, insects are conscious to a significant degree. And there's so many insects, it's just like phenomenal, like how many insects there are relative to how many humans. It's a very, very large multiple. And a kind of fanatical position might be someone who says, well, I'm just going to maximize expected value. And I think there's like a one in a thousand chance that insects are conscious to an important degree. And so I'm going to like focus all of my attention on trying to improve the well-being of insects. This is one that doesn't involve the time as much, but involves like a change of focus based on a long shot possibilities that something really matters, even though it probably doesn't.
1: Yeah, I think in that case, too, it seems counterintuitive to throw away, for instance, the opportunity for a very good outcome or this very tiny probability of a much better outcome. But then I think the other important thing, and and maybe something that people underappreciate, is just that there isn't any great, at least any widely accepted sort of positive argument for the kind of risk-neutral expected value maximization leads you to fanaticism. And in fact, the sort of standard expectational theory of decision-making under risk doesn't force you to be fanatical in that way.
0: Okay, interesting. Maybe let's first lay out, like, what is the case in favor of having a fanatical style of decision making where you're got just going to let that tail wag the dog?
1: So there's a few arguments you could make. So one route is just to defend risk neutral expected value maximization. What that means is you have some way of measuring value that's kind of independent of your preferences towards risk. So for instance, just to sort of simplify, I care about the number of happy people and the number of unhappy people who ever exist. And so the value of an outcome is just, say, number of happy people minus number of unhappy people. And you might just think, well, the intuitive response to risk is to value outcomes in proportion to sort of quantitatively how good they are and multiply that by probability and sort of risk-neutral expected value maximization just sort of feels right. There's also more sort of theoretical arguments you can give so, for instance, Harshani's aggregation theorem gets you something like at least risk neutrality in the number of people who you can benefit to a given degree. But it requires you to accept some some controversial premises like ex-ante, Pareto. So if you, know, you sort of assume that each individual is an expected utility maximizer and you say if some option gives greater expected utility for each individual, then we should prefer it, um, which there are various reasons why you might reject that.
0: So the underlying principle there is that if you know someone's better off and no one else is worse off then it's going to be better. And I guess Hassani tried to do a bit of mathematical alchemy to convert that into a view that you should maximize expected value, which is to say maximize the probability of each outcome by the value of that outcome and then add all of those up and then maximize the the total.
1: Yeah, so so it's a little complicated for instance because the harshani theorem allows individuals to be very risk averse for instance with respect to, you know, years of happy experience or whatever. But what it does say roughly is, well, if I can, say, benefit N individuals to a certain degree with probability P, or I can benefit M individuals to that same degree with probability Q, then which thing I should do is just determined by, you know, multiplying the number of people times the probability. There's another way of justifying fanaticism that doesn't depend on a commitment to risk-neutral expected value maximization, which is a kind of sorites argument. Uh, And this is something that Nick Beckstead and uh, Terry Thomas uh, have explored in a GPI working paper that's based on uh, part of Nick Beckstead's dissertation. Roughly, the argument is, well, look, suppose that I can have some good outcome with probability p, or I can have a much better outcome with, let's say, you know, we multiply P by some factor like 0.99 or something. So I reduce the probability of the good outcome by 1%, but I can increase, you know, how good the outcome is by an arbitrarily large amount, right? There must be some amount by which you could increase the value of the outcome such that you'd be willing to accept a 1% decrease in its probability, Right. And if you think for, for any probability and any magnitude of, of goodness or value, you're willing to accept you know, that 1% reduction in probability for a sufficiently large increase in the, in the magnitude of the payoff, then you just iterate that enough times, and ultimately you're preferring a tiny probability of a ridiculously good payoff to certainty of even potentially a very good payoff. So that allows you to be, for instance, risk averse with respect to value, but nevertheless, you end up being, at least in theory, in principle, vulnerable to fanaticism
0: let's take the other side now. Uh, How big are the the worries about fanaticism or what are the downsides and uh, what what ways might we work around it?
1: Well, to me, the sort of biggest reason to not be blithely fanatical or blithely uh, maximize expected value is just the arguments for it are only moderately compelling. So a thing that many philosophers and probably many people in the EA community probably misunderstand about standard decision theory is that the kind of the standard widely accepted theory of decision-making under risk, uh, expected utility theory, what it tells you roughly is that you should make choices in a way that can be represented as assigning numerical values to outcomes and then multiplying those values by probability and maximizing the expectation. But it doesn't tell you anything about sort of how you should go about assigning those numerical values to outcomes. And it doesn't tell you, for instance, if you have this sort of independently given ethical scale, like I care about the number of happy lives, even given, you know, even assuming that you should rank outcomes according to how good they are. So more happy people is, is always better than fewer happy people. Nevertheless, you know, you combine that with, say, the von Neumann-Morgenstern axioms, which are, you know, some of the, you know, one of the sort of standard formulations of expected utility theory. And the conclusion you get is just that you should maximize the expectation of some increasing function of the number of happy lives, right? But that increasing function could be, for instance, bounded above so that the more happy people already exist, the less you care at the margin about an additional happy person. So that's to say standard orthodox decision theory doesn't force you to be fanatical. And the arguments that do force you to be fanatical, there are various ways that you can sort of get off the bus.
0: Okay. So the idea here is that the basic principles in decision theory and expected value theory that we like usually think, well, we're going to have to work with these. They say that if more happy people is good, it's true. Then that twice as many happy people is going to be better than x as many happy people. However, it doesn't show that it has to be twice as good, and that means because you can kind of get declining returns on these like larger and larger benefits, that uh, you're, you're potentially going to be less vulnerable to weighting the largest outcomes in in, in scale because you can you can tamp them down by saying well, maybe twice as many happy people is only 1% better as, as 1x as uh, many happy people.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you could, for instance, you could maximize the expectation of the logarithm of the number of happy people if you wanted to. That would still be vulnerable to fanaticism because that's unbounded. But, yeah, you know, you can have functions like log that are sort of concave, right? That, yeah, that have a horizontal asymptote.
0: To me, it seems really intuitive, the idea that if something is good, then twice as much of it is twice as good. It's a little bit surprising to, to find out that that wouldn't be reasonably fundamental principle of rational decision-making. Is, is there a way of making it intuitive why that doesn't kind of spill out of these kind of axioms?
1: Well, so there's maybe two things to say. One is, in general, we don't think that twice as much of a good thing is twice as good. So money is the sort of obvious example here. Of course, if you get a billion dollars tomorrow, that would be life-changing. If you get an additional billion dollars the day after that, that would be nice. But, you know... It wouldn't double the impact of that first billion dollars. So then you need some separate argument for why, say, happy lives behave differently than money. And, you know, maybe it sort of seems intuitive that they do. Maybe, maybe the point is that we value happy lives sort of intrinsically, where we only value money instrumentally or something like that. But at least it's not sort of automatic or axiomatic that anything that, that matters, we have some way of measuring how much of it there is, that the value of it has to sort of scale linearly with the amount of it.
0: The normal story there is that money is instrumentally valuable. So it's just like useful as a means to an end. And assuming that my end was happiness, then I can't buy twice as much happiness with $2 billion as I, as I could with $1 billion. Maybe I could barely make myself any happier whatsoever. And so, of course, the second billion isn't equally as good as the first billion. But then with the thing that you terminally value, with the thing that is valuable in itself, like happiness, if I could get twice as much happiness, that feels more, more intuitive that that is twice as good.
1: Yeah, one way that you could respond is to say, well, maybe to some extent we value, say, individual happiness or the existence of happy lives, well, not just intrinsically, but also sort of instrumentally or because it's constitutive of some greater good, like we want there to be a flourishing human civilization or something like that. Or we want the universe to contain life and sentience and happiness. And once there's enough life and happiness and sentience, to sort of satiate that need for the universe to contain happiness, then we care about additional increases in individual happiness or the number of happy people less or something like that. But then the other thing to say is, grant your argument, for instance, that twice as many happy people is twice as good, then there's a sort of further question, if I can have one outcome for sure, or another outcome that's twice as good with, say, 51% probability, should I prefer the twice as good outcome with 51% probability? Even conceding that it's twice as good, it doesn't follow automatically that I should just multiply that by the probability.
0: So you're saying you don't necessarily have to do linear expected value maximization to be rational on, on like this view?
1: Yeah, well, so the thing that the standard axioms of expected utility theory tell you is, suppose that you, well, this isn't sort of part of expected utility theory, but suppose ethics, you know, gives us a ranking of outcomes, right? So more happy people or more happiness is, is better. Right, and we sort of stick that in exogenously, right, and then we say also you have to satisfy these axioms like uh, independence and continuity and transitivity and so forth. Then the conclusion that, that spits out of that is you need some utility function that's increasing in the total amount of value or number of happy lives or whatever, such that more happy people has greater utility. But that doesn't mean that that function doesn't have to be linear, right? Just nothing in the axioms forces it to be linear. So at least just appeal to those axioms or appeal to the normative authority of expected utility theory doesn't get you that jump from, you know, twice as good to we should, you know, weight it twice as much when we're multiplying by probabilities.
0: To what degree does this solve this problem of fanaticism? Should people think like, oh, well, this is dealt with this issue to a a pretty large extent?
1: Well, I, I definitely don't think that the problem is resolved. So my own take on fanaticism and on decision making under risk for whatever it's worth is fairly permissive, the kind of weird and crazy view that I'm attracted to is that we're only required to avoid choosing options that are what's called first-order stochastically dominated, which means that you have two options. Let's call them option one and option two. And then there's various possible outcomes that could result from either of those options. And for each of those outcomes, we ask, what's the probability, if you choose option one or if you choose option two, that you get not that outcome specifically, but an outcome that's at least that good? So say option one for any possible outcome gives you a greater overall probability of an outcome at least that desirable. Then that seems like a pretty compelling reason to choose option one. So to give it maybe a a simple example would be helpful. So suppose that uh, I'm going to flip a fair coin and I offer you a choice between two tickets. One ticket will pay a dollar if the coin lands heads and nothing if it lands tails. The other ticket will pay two dollars if the coin lands tails, but nothing if it lands heads. So you don't have what's called statewise dominance here, because if the coin lands heads, then the first ticket gives you a better outcome, right? $1 rather than $0. But you do have stochastic dominance because both tickets give you the same chance of at least $0, namely certainty. Both tickets give you a 50% chance of at least $1, but the second ticket uniquely gives you a 50% chance of at least $2, right? And that seems like a compelling argument for choosing it.
0: I see. So I guess like, and in a continuous case rather than a binary one, you'd have to say, well, the worst case is better in like, say, scenario two rather than scenario one, and the one percentile case is better, and the second percentile case, the median is better, or at least as good, and the best case scenario is also as good or better. And so like across the whole distribution of outcomes from like worst to best, like with probability, like adding them up as as percentiles, the second scenario is always equal or better. And so it would seem like crazy to choose the option that is like always uh, equally as good or worse no matter how lucky you get.
1: Right. Even though there are states of the world where the stochastically dominant option will turn out worse. Nevertheless, you know, the sort of distribution of possible outcomes is better.
0: Okay. So you're saying if you compare the scenario where you get unlucky in scenario two versus lucky in scenario one, scenario one could end up better. But like ex ante, before you know whether you got lucky with the outcome or not, it was like worse at every point.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay. And and so your view is a fairly narrow one that we only need to take Options that are stochastically dominant.
1: Or or that are not stochastically dominated. So how is that different? Suppose I have three options, one, two, and three. It could be that, for instance, one stochastically dominates two, but three neither dominates nor is dominated by anything. And then, yeah, three is not isn't stochastically dominant of anything else, but the important thing is that it's not stochastically dominated. So there's no other option that you say, clearly this is better than three. And that means three is permissible
0: seems like in practice and the world being so messy there's so many different potential outcomes with different rankings from like 0% to 100% of of luckiness that it's going to be rare to find options that are stochastically dominated or at least that there'll be a wide range of options that aren't stochastically dominated and so this could in the real world end up being a very permissive theory of what it is to make a rational decision.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, when you asked earlier, well, should we just think that for instance this point about uh what expected utility theory tells us that this kind of settles the problem of fanaticism. One reason not to think that is, in effect, what standard expected utility theory tells you is just this stochastic dominance thing, right? It constrains your your choices under risk up to stochastic dominance, but no further. And as you say, that's just very, very, very permissive. So for instance, uh, if I can save one life for sure or 100 lives with probability 0.99, both the it's just stochastic dominance view and the it's just, you know, axioms of expected utility theory view say you're permitted to do either thing. But intuitively, that save 100 lives with probability 0.99 looks like the better option.
0: Are there any kind of arguments that we could make for fanaticism or for the more like linear maximized expected value view that might get us Further than just saying you shouldn't choose something that's stochastically dominant and might be a bit closer to common sense in this kind of thing where you're saying, well, a 99% chance of saving 100 lives, that's got to be better than like a certainty of saving one life because it's 99 people in expectation.
1: Yeah. So the argument that I've been exploring in my work recently, in particular in this uh, working paper, Exceeding Expectations, looks at what happens to the stochastic dominance criterion when you add in what you might call background uncertainty. So suppose that you're Let's say a, a classical utilitarian, uh, just for example. So you measure the, the value of an outcome by the total amount of, say, happiness minus suffering in the resulting world. And when you make a choice, you're unsure about sort of two things that we, can, that we can separate out if we want to. One is the outcome of your choice. You can think of that as what happens in your future light cone in the part of the universe that you can affect. But you're also uncertain about sort of how much value there is in the universe to begin with. So in the past or in faraway galaxies or, or whatever. And it turns out that if you're sufficiently uncertain about the amount of value that's, that's there in the universe to begin with, then options whose sort of their local outcomes, the thing that happens inside your future light cone, has greater expected value but isn't in a vacuum stochastically dominant. It becomes stochastically dominant once you add in that background uncertainty. If you try to sort of model this uh, numerically in a way that at least seems plausible to me, you get the conclusion that actually this very minimal stochastic dominance criterion, once you account for our background uncertainty about the amount of value in the universe, recovers most of risk-neutral expected value maximization and, for instance, can tell us you should save the 100 lives with probability 0.99 rather than one life for sure, while still giving us an out in these sort of extreme fanatical cases.
0: Okay, interesting. Is there any way of kind of giving an intuitive uh, verbal explanation of, of why it is that, that all of that background uncertainty ends up recovering something closer to just the normal maximized expected value?
1: Yeah, I can try. So, for example, well, take that one happy person for sure versus 100 happy people with probability 0.99. Uh, if you're just thinking about that choice in a vacuum and you imagine that there's sort of no other, you know, nothing else in the universe, or at least nothing else in the universe that you're uncertain about, you can say, well, if I take the sure thing, then I'm absolutely guaranteed that the total amount of value in the universe will be at least plus one, right? If the units are, you know, happy people in existence or something. Uh, Versus if I take the second option, I'm not sure that the universe will be at least that good, right? But when you add in substantial background uncertainty, then you can no longer say that because you're no longer certain that even if you take the sort of apparent sure thing option, you're no longer certain that the universe as a whole will have a value of at least plus one, because right? it could be that you know the rest of the universe, the part that you can't affect, is already really bad. And then if you want to think about, okay, so there's this you know threshold plus one, say I'm really interested in the universe having a value of at least plus one. Well, one way in which my choice could, could bring that about is that the sort of amount of value in the universe to begin with is somewhere between zero and one. And then I add this extra unit that puts us over the threshold. Uh, but another way it could happen is... I choose the the riskier option, and it pays off, which happens with probability 0.99. And the amount of value in the universe to begin with was somewhere between minus 99 and plus 1. And so that extra 100 units of value now puts us over the threshold to have a more than plus 1 total value in the universe.
0: And it puts you over the threshold in far more scenarios because there's a wider range
1: there. Exactly right. So it's much more likely that the total amount of pre-existing value in the universe will be between negative ninety-nine and one than that it'll be between zero and one.
0: And there you are using a strict cutoff of the boundary being one, where it's like no good below and it's good above. But uh, we, you know we can extrapolate the same underlying idea to like a wider range of possible outcomes where they have like diminishingly increasing value.
1: Yeah, and what stochastic dominance means is basically you could pick any number you want, plus one or mm. minus ten or plus a thousand. And exactly the same argument will work, that choosing the expectationally superior option will increase your overall probability of ending up with a universe that's at least that good.
0: Okay, now I get it. Now, I guess now my objection is the is the other way around. So <laughs> this seems like it might be such a strong argument that it might just bring back fanaticism because you've gotten too close again to, to just the, the raw maximize expected value view.
1: Yeah, two things to say about that. One is, I think if it does, then we've got actually quite a powerful argument for fanaticism because the argument that you shouldn't choose a stochastically dominated option just seems extremely compelling.
0: It's so powerful.
1: Yeah, there's sort of axiomatic arguments you can give for it, including the the standard axioms of expected utility theory that people find quite compelling. So I think if it just turns out that, you know, the fanatical option in, in a lot of these sort of real world cases is stochastically dominant, then... That's a better argument than we had before for embracing fanaticism. One of the sort of major motivations for this project is that this phenomenon of background uncertainty inducing stochastic dominance sort of happens really easily when you're thinking about moderate probabilities of medium-sized payoffs. And then when you hold fixed the expected value of an option, but you get that expected value from smaller and smaller probabilities of larger and larger payoffs, As you do that sort of Pascalian transformation on an option, it takes more and more and more background uncertainty to make it stochastically dominant. And so you get this sort of nice phenomenon where if you know what your sort of background uncertainty is, your probability distribution about the amount of value in the universe to begin with, then you can actually set a threshold where you can say, well, if I have the option to produce one uh, unit of value with certainty versus like a tiny probability of an astronomically good outcome... No matter how astronomically good that outcome is, the probability has to be at least X for me to be compelled, you know, rationally required to do it. So, you know, 10 to the minus 10 or something. And below that, I'm still permitted to do the fanatical thing, but I'm also permitted to take the the sure thing.
0: I see. So it will get you fanaticism up until the point where like the goodness of the outcome that's necessary to kind of try to prompt you to be fanatical gets large relative to the background uncertainty about like all of the different scenarios of how well the entire future could go. And so once you start getting to like universe scale good outcomes, that's no longer big relative to the underlying uncertainty that you had regardless of your actions about how well things could go because it's kind of maybe it's now spanning the full range from like the best to worst outcome. Yeah. And so you, and so the stochastic dominance argument no longer applies and, and you have like a, a sphere of um, permissibility.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very roughly your forced to maximize expected value in most cases where the outcomes that you're looking at are smaller than the for instance the interquartile range of your background uncertainty so the, you know the difference between like the 25th and the 75th percentile of amounts of value there could be in the universe to begin with one simple way of measuring you know how uncertain you are if the you know sort of local outcomes that you're considering are much smaller than that then you're typically required you know, under some other conditions, particularly, you know, you need sufficiently heavy tails and things like that. But under those conditions, you're required in almost all cases to maximize expected value. But then when you're dealing with outcomes that are uh, much larger potentially than that interquartile range or the scale of your background uncertainty more generally, then the sort of stochastic dominance requirement becomes a lot more permissive.
0: Okay. So, so this seems like a very neat potential kind of middle ground thing where it gets you like quite a lot of fanaticism but like not so much that it seems to really go off the deep end but for for an individual it seems like it might prompt you to be like very fanatical because we're kind of like all tiny ants just adding little bits of sand to the hill (laughs) and so perhaps like the effect that any one of us in a decision can ever hope to make about like the total goodness of the universe relative to the background uncertainty is minuscule and so in practice maybe it's going to spit out the fanatical answer most of the time except in very wacky cases.
1: Well, unless you think that—unless what you're concerned with as an individual is making some tiny difference to the probability that, you know, humanity does or doesn't cross some threshold uh, that makes a difference. For instance, existential risks, right? If you think that if I devote my career, say, to trying to reduce biological risks, say, I can individually reduce the probability of premature human extinction by one in a billion or one in a trillion or something like that, right— then in some sense, you're still an individual, you know, just making a sort of small marginal difference. But that difference takes the form of changing the probability of an astronomically good or astronomically bad outcome. So in in that case, uh, the stochastic dominance view combined with uh, what I take to be sort of reasonable assumptions about our background uncertainty might say that you're actually permitted to to go either way and sort of opt for the sure thing, um, you know, work on global poverty or something.
0: I see. That's because the probability is sufficiently low that, uh, or indeed, like, the the lower the probability, the wider the range of permissibility because the probability difference is so small relative to the background uncertainty.
1: Yeah, so the, uh, I mean, basically, the, the way to think about it is, like, you know, you're getting lots of expected value from, say, reducing extinction risk because the sort of potential payoff if humanity becomes a grand interstellar civilization or something is so astronomical, say it's you know 10 to the 52 happy lives or something. But what the sort of stochastic dominance requirement under background uncertainty forces you to do, again, sort of roughly, is like treat those increases in the total amount of value in the universe as linear up to roughly the scale of your background uncertainty. But if the scale of your background uncertainty is, say, 10 to the 15th or 10 to the 20th human lives, then you're forced to regard like ensuring the future existence of humanity as at least good to you know the degree 10 to the 20 but that's a lot less than 10 to the 50
0: Now, maybe I'm going to seem nuts here, but it seems like one aspect of the kind of background uncertainty is, say, whether there'll be aliens that will arise at some point in the future and colonize some significant fraction of the universe in our stead, even if we go extinct. Or maybe there were aliens in the past or aliens like outside of the accessible universe somewhere else. Or maybe there's a lot of uncertainty just about what is of moral value and how much moral value can exist because like we don't know, say, how valuable good experiences are or how valuable justice is. And so, in fact, (laughs) the amount of uncertainty about the goodness of the future of all of the universe is larger even than like what we can directly uh, affect by guiding Earth originating life.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally plausible. So if you think that the universe is really enormous and there are probably other civilizations out there and however good our civilization might be, there's at least a substantial probability that there are many, many civilizations uh, already in the universe or far away in distant galaxies that uh, are achieving that that same level of value, and we don't know exactly how much value that is or how many of those civilizations there are and, and so forth, then, yeah, I, I think it's totally plausible that the scale of our background uncertainty about the value in the universe could be many orders of magnitude greater than the potential value of human civilization. But this is the sort of thing where, of course, you know, what practical conclusions you reach depends kind of sensitively on what numbers you plug in, and this is all pretty subjective. So uh, yeah, it's it's hard to really pound your fist on the table and say, our background uncertainty should have, you know, the scale rather than that scale.
0: Okay, makes sense. Maybe to wrap up this section, maybe what what should listeners uh, take away from this, if they're someone who has been trying to themselves grapple with this question of, you know, how fanatical to be in their kind of expected uh, value maximization choices in, do I work on existential risk? Or do I work on something with a high probability of of benefiting people in the immediate term?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, Unfortunately, my own take uh, or, or the sort of the take that's given by my view is something like, well, it depends kind of delicately on the numbers. And, you know, if, if you think that you can make, say, uh, you know, 10 to the minus 10 difference uh, in the probability of extinction, well, you know, then it just depends on exactly how uncertain you are about the value of the universe and so forth. But a little bit more philosophically or maybe a little bit more helpfully, I guess I would say... Number one, it's worth bearing in mind that it's not just automatic and axiomatic and beyond dispute that you have to be a kind of naive expected value maximizer. There are good reasons to be skeptical of that, and at least I don't think it's unreasonable for somebody to, in sufficiently extreme cases, sort of opt for the sure thing rather than just being you know, led anywhere by any tiny probability of 10 to the 52 future lives or something like that. <laughs> um, but then on the other hand, there are, insofar as this argument about stochastic dominance or under background risk is, is compelling, it means that at least in a lot of ordinary cases where we're not considering really extreme probabilities, actually the fanatical thing shouldn't seem so counterintuitive or... Outlandish. Right, yeah, because actually what you're doing is in some sense quite safe. You know, whatever target you're interested in you're increasing the probability that the universe as a whole reaches or exceeds that target.
0: Okay, nice. What's been the reception to this idea among philosophers? Has it been warmly received?
1: Uh, I would say people have, have uh, very different responses. So I think, <laughs> I think people generally find uh, the argument and the results interesting. You know, some people find the crazy view at least, uh, you know, worth taking seriously, and other people don't. I think a sort of common objection that I've encountered and that I think is sort of totally reasonable is, well, we have these these intuitions, for instance, that you should maximize expected value in ordinary cases, but you're not required to in these kind of extreme fanatical cases. And maybe this kind of, you know, the stochastic dominance rule combined with our actual empirical background uncertainty is a kind of decent extensional match for our intuitions but it doesn't seem super plausible that it really gets at the explanation for our intuitions, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, because we're yeah. not walking around sort of thinking about our uncertainty about the amount of value in distant galaxies or something like that. So is it really a point in favor of this theory that it that it captures our intuitions if it's not sort of capturing them for the right reasons?
0: Yeah, I guess it, so it captures the conclusion, but for a reason that is not plausibly related to like why we actually believe the thing that we believe.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I want to argue, and this is something I, I don't do in the existing working paper and something I still need to sort of work out in in more detail. But it does seem to me that there's actually more of a connection than you might initially think. So for instance, if you're making uh, say just self-interested prudential decisions about your money, one good reason to maximize expected value when you're making small bets is that you have lots of other uncertainty about the rest of your sort of financial future. You face this long run of other financial choices and that that gets you probably not all the way to stochastic dominance because for instance your you know uncertainty about your future income is not probably unbounded but it means that a, a very wide range of risk attitudes you know will agree that you want to do the expectation maximizing thing and i think people are plausibly sort of sensitive to you know the fact that you face this long run of future choices that you face other uncertainty that you know adopting a policy of maximizing expected value is extremely likely to pay off more in the long run. So I do think there's some connection here, but uh, I I don't have it sort of fully worked out in my head yet.
0: Whereas in one-off bets, you can't make that same argument about in the long run over many choices, it's necessarily going to pay off or very likely to pay off. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I don't want to introduce Pascal's mugging here because that would require us to lay out Pascal's mugging for those who don't know it. But I guess, uh, yeah, a savvy listener can think about how this might interact with the Pascal's mugging case and we'll stick up a link to, to, to that thought experiment. Let's talk now about challenges to long-termism that stem from us not being able to foresee properly uh, the effects of our actions on the very long term. For those who are yeah, fresh to this topic, uh, what's, what's the basic trouble here?
1: Well, so long-termism is very roughly the view that what we ought to do in most choice situations or most of the most important choice situations that we face is mainly determined by the effects of our actions on, on the very far future. And the kind of simple intuitive argument for long-termism is that the far future is just potentially vast. Scales are much greater than the scale of the the near future, e.g. if you think human originating civilization could exist for billions of years or something like that. But there's this countervailing effect, rather, that's harder to quantify, which is as we look further and further and further into the future, it gets harder and harder to predict not just what the future will look like, but what the effects of our present actions or interventions will be. And it's not at all obvious that when you quantify this, you know, the sort of the the first factor, the scale of the far future is larger or more powerful than the second factor, the unpredictability of the far future, the difficulty of predictably influencing the far future.
0: So, yeah, why think that uh, we would be able to predict the consequences of our, uh, of our actions or really anything that we care about, you know, 100 or 1,000 year, years in the future? So it's hard enough to predict what, <laughs> what effect the things I do are going to have in one month or one year, <laughs> let alone that far out.
1: Yeah. So, I think my own response to this, at least, is that our ability to predict and predictably influence the future is a matter of degree. And one simple reason to not just throw our hands up and say, well, we can't possibly predict the future more than 100 years in advance is, well, look, we, you know, we can, we can predict the future and we can predict the effects of our actions one year in advance. And, uh, well, now think about, you know, two years or three years and, and, and so forth. Presumably, it gets harder to predict the future, but it, w- it would be weird if there was some point where it just sort of discontinuously went to zero, where our ability to, to predictably influence the future went from non-zero and, like, not that great, but we can, we can have some predictable effect, to all of a sudden you can have no predictable effect at all. So I think the right way to think about this and, and, and model this is that our ability to predictably influence the far future decreases, and we want to understand exactly what that means and and the rate at which it decreases. The other answer, uh, sort of from a different angle, is that we can plausibly have predictable effects on the very long-run future if we can have effects on the nearer future that are persistent, where the the sort of most obvious example is if we can make the difference between humanity, say, surviving or not surviving the next century— plausibly if we survive the next century or the next millennium our civilization has at least a non trivial chance of persisting for many thousands of years maybe millions of years maybe even billions of years and on the other hand if we don't survive the next century it's very plausible that no civilization is going to exist on earth maybe you know for all of, for the rest of time certainly for millions and millions of years and so all you need to be able to do to have a predictable effect on the very long run future or at least have some non-trivial chance of an effect on the very long-run future, is to affect the medium-term future in in ways that are persistent.
0: Yeah. As you we were talking about how you know, the uncertainty gets bigger and bigger year after year, I wonder whether the rate at which the uncertainty increases kind of declines over time. Because you think, imagine if I did something and it successfully had a positive impact one year from now and two years from now and three years from now, it's possible that it will flip in the fourth year and will go to zero or will become negative. But it seems like the rate at which that kind of flipping thing happens should Decrease the longer it, the effect has been positive. To some extent, the uncertainty about whether it was a good or bad thing might decline over time.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right. You know, we we haven't yet sort of asked the question: How do you quantify the rate at which your ability to predictably influence the far future declines? Uh, but a natural way to quantify it is: you know, you you want you want to put the world into some desirable state, call it S, rather than you know a not desirable, a less desirable state, not S, and you want to know. If I can make the difference, say, in the next 10 years or 100 years or something between the world being in state S and not S, how likely is it that my action will still be making the difference or still determining the state of the world a 1,000 years or a million years or something from now? And the kind of straightforward way to model that is maybe it sort of declines uh, exponentially. So uh, maybe I can, you know, there's a 1% chance that I can make the difference in the next 100 years. And then after that, for every century, there's a 50% chance that something's going to come along where my action is no longer making the difference, right? So, so that would be the kind of constant rate of a of fall off or, you know, would, would produce, uh, in effect, a sort of exponential discount rate on the value of our interventions. But it could be that, for instance, the probability that some exogenous event comes along and spoils the effect of my intervention does decline with time but nevertheless decline slowly enough that the sort of discounting effect is still quite significant and really cuts into the expected value of, of trying to influence in the far future.
0: Yeah, I guess that could happen two different ways, or maybe these are just the same way. But, you know, if, if the positive effect has lasted 100 years, then maybe we've learned something, that that was a robustly positive intervention, and so it should be expected to be robustly positive in future centuries as well. And I suppose another thing might be that humanity could go through some transition to a far more stable state where things are less chaotic. And if it had a positive effect up until the, The beginning of that more stable situation which we're in, then it's just going to persist being positive for as long as that uh, stable situation persists after that.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, one way of arguing, you know, for long-termism in the face of these sort of epistemic worries is to say, well, there's at least a non-zero probability that, again, in sort of the case of existential risk, that if our civilization survives the next thousand years, then all the dangers are behind us. We'll be multiplanetary. There's just no chance of these sort of exogenous events coming along, and so we'll survive until the death of the universe or something. And on the other hand, that if we don't survive, then maybe you know the the rate at which life arises on planets is just so low that there's essentially no chance that another civilization will ever replace us. And so at least if you have sort of well, say one in a billion credence in this hypothesis that says that the effects of avoiding or or causing existential risk will be persistent until the heat death of the universe or something like that, then that's enough to generate enormous amounts of expected value. But then we're sort of back to these worries about fanaticism, right? That so much of the expected value of existential risk reduction is coming from this maybe very uh, improbable hypothesis of kind of unlimited persistence.
0: Okay, so you've got uh, a paper called The Epistemic Challenge to Long-Termism. What does you hope to add to this discussion with that paper?
1: Yeah, so the purpose of that paper basically is to do some relatively simple and, and, as I think of it, kind of preliminary modeling of the sort of relative weight of these two competing forces. So the way that I imagine things in that paper is, uh, as I described it a moment ago, you want to put the world into some more desirable state rather than a less desirable state. And there's some chance that you can succeed in doing that in the sort of medium term future, say the next hundred or thousand years. And then what you want to know is what's the probability that that effect will persist for a given length of time. And you imagine that there are sort of two kinds of exogenous events that could come along. One is sort of negative exogenous events where you manage to put the world into the more desirable state, but then a million years later, 10,000 years later or something, some event comes along that puts the world into less desirable state anyway. So for instance, humanity goes extinct anyway. And then the other possibility is... Say we fail to put the world into the more desirable state, maybe because we you know focus on the short term instead of focusing on existential risk, and we go extinct. But then nevertheless, some event comes along later, like in another intelligent civilization arises on Earth. And so, you know, by a million years from now, civilization is back in business or something like that. The goal of the paper is, I think, you know, this is a sort of inevitably a quantitative exercise to figure out what these kinds of considerations do to the expected value of the far future. Um, but I tried to sort of bite off a little piece of this and say, well, let's suppose we're, you know, total consequentialists. So we grant some sort of normative assumptions that are that are favorable to long-termism. And let's suppose we're just happy to be naive expected value maximizers. So I'm sort of setting aside these worries about fanaticism for most of the paper. But then I'm going to try to examine a set of kind of empirical assumptions or, or empirical beliefs or worldview that you might have that's kind of least favorable to long-termism within reason. And that means, among other things, thinking that maybe there is some irreducible rate at which these exogenous events come along, like an illimitable minimum uh, chance of extinction per century that produces this kind of permanent exponential discount rate on the effects of our actions. Uh, and so the purpose of the paper is to kind of model, if you know, Humanity either is just existing in a good state for some indefinite period of time, or maybe we're expanding and we're settling more of the universe. But there's also the sort of uh, ineliminable possibility of exogenous events coming along. Does the expected value of attempts to influence the far future, for instance, by existential risk reduction, still look so good in in comparison to the expected value of attempts to improve the the more short-term future? Yeah. Okay. So yeah,
0: earlier I was saying, well, if you make some positive intervention then that might get washed away in future. But the rate at which it washes away probably declines over time, or well, there's some reason to think that that might be true. And here you're considering a relative kind of worst case scenario, where it's the case that the rate of your actions being washed away in the future just remains constant. So every 100 years, the odds of like something great that you accomplished just becoming irrelevant remains, say, you know, 1%, 10%, 50%, well, or whatever it may be, in which case you get this like geometric decay on the value that it provides over time. And then you're thinking, well, in that fairly uh, dismal scenario, is it still worth focusing on the very long term or do long-termist projects then get dominated by things that have a bigger impact on the immediate term?
1: Yeah, that's right. I'm trying to do kind of two things. One is develop this uh, fairly general model where you can think about any long-termist intervention you want kind of under the rubric of more desirable state, less desirable state, and how long does that effect persist? But then the case that I'm trying to actually address numerically is the expected value of, of existential risk reduction. And in that case, the the conclusion that I reach, and I think this is all sort of, there's an ineliminable level of subjectivity here. And and so, you know, other people should take a crack at this and and, and see what conclusions they come to. But the conclusion that I come to anyway is that even when you make what look like kind of the most pessimistic assumptions for long-termism within reason on these kind of empirical questions, nevertheless, the expected value of existential risk reduction still looks quite good in comparison to short-termist alternatives.
0: OK, yeah. Is there any way of uh, kind of summing up the empirical pieces that go into or the empirical ingredients that go into that pie?
1: Yeah, well, so the short answer is there is, you know, a whole bunch of parameters in this model, each of which makes makes some difference. But probably the most important things you have to think about are, number one, how much of a difference can I make to the probability of the better outcome rather than the worse outcome? So humanity surviving rather than going extinct being realized in the medium term where what I do in the paper is a very kind of Fermi-estimate style thing where I just say, well, imagine that human civilization as a whole focused on nothing but ensuring its own survival. Every waking minute of of every human being's day (laughs) for the next thousand years, how much could we change the probability that we survive? And I say, well, surely, you know, at least 1%. And then, okay, what proportion of humanity's work hours over, over the next Millennium, say, can you buy $4 million? And if you assume that the returns to existential risk reduction at least aren't increasing, you know, we assume typically things have diminishing returns. So to be as sort of pessimistic as possible, assume you have constant returns. And then that allows you to sort of get a, a sort of a lower bound estimate of how much you can change the probability of of premature extinction. So then the sort of second important empirical question is How good do you think the survival of humanity would be? And that depends a lot on are you thinking about a scenario where we just sort of remain earthbound for, say, 500 million years until the sun gets too hot, or a scenario where we expand into the universe. And so the sort of value of human civilization is growing, presumably sort of cubically in time because we're expanding, Mm. you know, in the the spatial dimensions. Exactly. So I consider both of those possibilities and I try to make sort of conservative assumptions about, you know, what the sort of welfare of future people will be like. And then the final crucial piece is, what do you think the sort of ineliminable long-term rate of exogenous events coming along is going to be? And again, in the spirit of just sort of testing the robustness of long-termism and making kind of the most pessimistic assumptions within reason, I say, well, you know, let's take what look like the most pessimistic reasonable assumptions about the next century and probably the most pessimistic thing you could Reasonably believe is that that represents the sort of ineliminable long-term rate at which existential catastrophes come along, and that's maybe at the absolute outside. Maybe it's one percent a year. It's probably less than that. Yeah. So, so what I conclude in the paper is uh, you can sort of if you make sufficiently pessimistic assumptions about, for instance, the long-term rate at which existential catastrophes come along, sort of ineliminably, you can come up with empirical assumptions that if you really commit to them will really uh, cut the expected value of, say, existential risk reduction down to something trivial. So for instance, if you think there's an ineliminable 1% risk of existential catastrophe every year for the rest of time, right? But once you start accounting for uncertainties about parameters in the model, for instance, you know, okay, I have at least some credence that a far future civilization will be more stable or more secure than that, that the annual rate of existential catastrophe will be only, say, one in 10,000 or, or 100,000, one to a million or something like that. And, you know, maybe I'm sort of skeptical that humanity will ever settle the stars, but I think there's at least a one in a thousand or one in a million chance that we will. And maybe I think there's a one in a thousand chance of these sort of really utopian scenarios where we manage to just produce sort of astronomically more happiness per unit resource or per star system than, you know, our current technology allows us to, And you only need a little bit of credence in those more optimistic assumptions to get the sort of case for existential risk reduction back on track, at least within the framework of sort of expected value maximization. But then you sort of end up back at this point, which motivates my my interest in in fanaticism, where honestly, I I I think it's just quite hard to figure out, at least without a a ton of subjective guesswork, how much does the expectational case for, uh, say, working on existential risk reduction depend on these very sort of extreme tail probabilities, but it's at least sort of prima facie plausible that it does. If you're you're very skeptical about the scenario where far future human civilization is extremely stable and expanding into the stars and producing enormous amounts of happiness, and you assign, the you know, there are reasonable people who think that that's just a sort of outlandish possibility and assign it, you know, very uh, sort of small trivial probability. Yeah, it could turn out that the of expectational case for existential risk reduction is really driven by that trivial probability you assign to what you see as a sort of outlandish scenario. And so I think where this exercise leaves me, at least, is thinking, uh, insofar as we're happy to be expected value maximizers for for whatever reason, the case for prioritizing at least existential risk reduction, maybe the long-term future more generally, looks pretty robust. But insofar as we have these sort of residual worries about fanaticism, there is a kind of question mark where, you know, those worries about fanaticism combined with our epistemic worries about the far future to produce some sort of residual discomfort potentially with long-termism.
0: So to kind of uh, re- repeat that back, sounds like if, if you're someone who is just like really feels very unsure about what are the odds that a group of people really trying to reduce the risk of extinction are going to succeed, and if you're really unsure about how large could human civilization become in future or, you know, Earth originating life, like maybe it can go to space, maybe it can't, no idea, and if you're also unsure about like whether we'll ever be able to achieve some kind of stable state where extinction is now uh, very unlikely then all of that uncertainty kind of means that there is some like reasonable possibility that we will get to this like stable, very positive and very big state. And so that uncertainty means that there's a strong case for working to try to achieve that outcome by reducing the possibility of some catastrophe that would take us off track now. And to get around that, you kind of have to say, no, I'm like really sure that we can't reduce extinction now. or, or and, and I'm really sure that we're never going to achieve a stable state. And I know we're never going to get off Earth, or we're never going to leave the solar system. Things that I guess well, some people claim that. I don't really know what on earth the basis would be for being so confident about any of those claims. Not, to, to be honest, like no one of those three seems plausible to me, really. But someone who was committed to those empirical views, they would have a strong case against potentially working on, on long termism.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and I, I mean I share your intuition, not from the perspective of of you know any of this empirical stuff being my real expertise, but but it, it does seem just very strange to me to not assign, you know, some substantial probability to humanity eventually settling the universe and, you know, living in ways that are radically different and maybe radically better than the way we live today. But part of the purpose of this exercise is to say, well, there are these sort of smart, apparently reasonable people who really do find these sort of scenarios outlandish. And they assign at least sort of most of their credence to the more kind of mundane, earthbound scenarios for what the far future will look like. And should those people be long-termists, particularly when you sort of throw these epistemic worries into the mix?
0: Yeah, I guess like it seems like you could combine this paper with the fanaticism one to get some kind of middle ground thing, where maybe you have to discount or chop off the most extreme, biggest outcomes because they would be large relative to the background uncertainty. But then maybe if you if you kind of bake this cake all together, uh, you you end up with some moderately strong case or like moderately robust case in favor of working on really long-termist projects.
1: Yeah, uh, this is all sort of very back of the envelope and, and and subjective, but it seems to me, and I make some argument for this in the uh, paper on, on stochastic dominance, that you know our background uncertainty is at least sort of great enough that we should be quote-unquote fanatical or expected value maximizers, roughly in the, out, out to probabilities like one in a billion or something like that. And then in the context of these sort of epistemic worries, if you have... At least a one in a billion credence in these uh, scenarios that permit extreme persistence where a far future civilization will be extremely stable, for instance, then that's enough to not just make the expectational case for long-termism, but make the sort of more robust case on the basis of mere stochastic dominance. So, yeah, I guess I would say if you have less than a one in a billion credence in the more optimistic high persistence scenarios— or you have, you know, less background uncertainty than that argument sort of presupposes, I would view that as sort of unreasonable overconfidence. Um, I think many people would. But again, a lot of this sort of comes down to sort of subjective judgments about what reasonable probability assignments are.
0: Yeah, for people who are, uh, you know, ethically inclined towards long-termism as a kind of practical moral principle, what are the best arguments against working on things that look like existential risk-related or long-termist-related projects in practice?
1: Well, I did say for my own part, I'm fairly sold on the idea that existential risk should be high on the list of priorities for long-termists. And and one reason for that is, I think, that that's uh, where we have the sort of clearest argument for potentially extreme persistence. Uh, so when we're thinking about other things like changes to institutions or norms or values, maybe those changes will persist for a very long time, but it seems much more plausible to think that they'll eventually wash out or they would have happened anyway or something like that. But if you wanted to make the case for putting existential risk kind of lower on the list of of long-termist priorities, the most straightforward argument is just to contest the assumption that the survival of humanity is very, very good in expectation. So of course, you might think, uh, well, for instance, if you're the extreme cases, if you're something like a negative utilitarian, you think, well, we only care about minimizing suffering and if humanity survives for a very long time, maybe all we'll do is just spread suffering to the stars and that'll be terrible. So, of course, that's that's a reason for, well, not just not trying to minimize extinction risks, but maybe hoping that humanity goes extinct or something like
0: or, that. Or I suppose perhaps uh, trying to focus on preventing those worst case scenarios, which like yeah. might, might involve like being kind of neutral on extinction perhaps, but like focusing on like how could things become negative in value.
1: Yeah, that's true too. But you know, even if you're, uh, well, don't think of yourself as a negative or a negative leaning consequentialist, Something that, that I think uh, a number of long-termists believe is roughly sort of the modal case for uh, where humanity survives is one where we, you know, maybe, maybe things are better than break even in expectation, but we still achieve only a sort of tiny fraction of our potential value. So maybe we have dysfunctional social institutions or uh, people never sort of acquire the right, the right values or the true moral beliefs or something like that.
0: Or we're just not ambitious enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I- imagine, for instance, that the far future, by default, the modal scenario is kind of like human civilization today, where at least if you uh, set aside, you know, worries about factory farms and, and, and wild animals and just think about human beings, plausibly we're like a little bit above break-even, probably most people's lives are worth living, but we're not, you know, all ecstatic all the time or something. And maybe the modal scenario is is that continues just with, you know, fancier technology. You know, then you might also think, well, there is this other possibility out there where we just achieve sort of astronomical levels of, of happiness and value and in one way or another optimize the universe for value. And making even a very small change to the probability of future optimized for value versus the sort of modal mediocre future has greater expected value than reducing the the probability of existential risk, which just, for the most part, increases the probability of that mediocre future.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I I kind of uh, think I believe that. And it's maybe something we should talk about on on the show a little bit more, that there might be more value in kind of getting people to raise their vision for how amazing the future can be, and not aspiring merely to kind of survive and persist in what I would say is the kind of mediocre situation that we're in now, where it's not even really clear whether there's more good things than bad things in the world. Possibly there is, possibly there's not. But, but really what we should be aiming for is something where it's just like so astronomically clear that the universe is an amazing place and like everything, else, you know, the vast majority of stuff that's going on is fantastic. And I think maybe among people I know, but many people have that vision for something that's like extraordinarily astronomically good. But I think that's uh, that's not a mainstream cultural idea. Uh, and, and, it, and I would feel a lot better about the future if it were.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I do find it certainly plausible that long-termists should diversify their portfolio to some extent between increasing the probability of the survival of humanity versus increasing the expected value of human civilization conditional on survival. But I guess one thing I'm inclined to think, and I I don't think I have any uh, sort of amazing arguments to back this up, but I'm inclined to think that insofar as putting humanity on the track towards utopian future, a future optimized for value, insofar as that's tractable, insofar as that's something we can do much about, is also something that's probably likely to happen anyway. So if you're a moral realist and you think that there are real moral truths out there and those truths are discoverable and that agents, when they apprehend the moral truth, are at least sort of asymmetrically motivated to do good things rather than bad things, then plausibly, you know, in the long run, good moral values, you know, will be discovered and their influence will sort of propagate and we'll make our way towards utopia And if you don't think that, if you think basically people are our motivational systems are fine-tuned by evolution to do something other than pursue the good, e.g. to, you know, maximize reproductive success or something like that. And even if there is a moral truth out there, in the long run, you know, attempts to persuade people of the moral truth are not going to have a sort of enormous global influence on people's behavior um, because we're all just going to in the long run, be uh, reproductive fitness maximizers or something like that. I guess the thought is the path to utopia is either kind of inevitable or uh, nearly impossible or something like that.
0: Uh, Interesting. Okay, so this is kind of an argument that it's not very tractable because... There's going to be like strong underlying tendencies for people to adopt or not to adopt particular values and goals and just trying to make like moral arguments well either they do work, in which case they'll work at some point anyway, or they're going to fall on deaf ears uh, and it's not going to work uh, regardless of whether you personally try or not.
1: Yeah. And I, I shouldn't overstate the extent to which I believe this. I mean, I think there's certainly a, a, a it's not unreasonable to have some credence in a sort of middle ground where actually we can make the difference, particularly if you think values or, or motivations or, or something are going to sort of locked in at some point, maybe when we achieve super intelligence or something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that I find this that intuitively probable, just just, just like looking around culturally at different civilizations, uh, different cultural groupings, both like different ones that are around today and different ones that have been around throughout history. It seems like, yes, there's like particular things that are in common and are quite unusual not to have. But then, you know, with people's kind of discretionary budgets, the kind of ways that they express themselves and express their values, you see quite a bit of variation in what people choose to do with that slack. And it's influenced by, you know, philosophical arguments, as well as, you know, religion and, and, and culture and, like you know, tradition and all of that. And so it seems like maybe that stuff is difficult to shift around because that kind of culture is fairly persistent. But in as much as you think that you have a good argument that sort have of persuaded some people, maybe other people will be persuaded if they hear it as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find that sort of perfectly plausible or at least worth entertaining. But I think there are sort of two stories you can tell about the historical record that correspond to the kind of two prongs of this dilemma I was describing. So, you know, one prong is, the kind of moral progress story where slowly and unevenly and kind of in fits and starts, we've been inching our way towards the moral truth. And there's plenty of diversity, for instance, A, because there's a million ways to be wrong and only one way to be right. So insofar as we haven't reached the moral truth yet, we have different moral errors that we've fallen into. And number two, insofar as different cultures uh, are, are making sort of progress along that path towards the moral truth at different rates or something like that. So, you know, if some cultures at some point in the 19th century accept slavery and others don't, well, that's moral diversity, but it doesn't defeat the idea that we're all ultimately progressing towards the moral truth that slavery is bad or something like that. And then the other story you can tell is the kind of hard-nosed Darwinian story where uh, what's uh, happened in the last, say, two or three thousand years is just that we've been sort of out of evolutionary equilibrium in this weird way where we have motivational systems that were are sort of fine-tuned for our ancestral environment and suddenly we're thrust into this new environment where our motivations can maybe go off in weird directions and there aren't sort of strong selection pressures because, well, we have things like an agricultural surplus that means that even people making sort of weird, non-fitness-maximizing choices, their lineages can survive for a while. But in the very long term... Maybe we'll end up back in some Malthusian trap, or maybe, you know, we'll end up with some evolutionary competition between artificial superintelligences or something, and then evolution will take back over, and you'll just get motivational systems that are better that are optimized for something like reproductive fitness.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's push on to briefly discuss uh, another long-termist related issue. You have this essay that you and uh, Hillary Graves are working on at the moment about what you call the, the scope of long-termism which is kind of roughly how much of all of humanity's resources could we or should we spend on improving the long term future uh, before kind of the marginal returns on spending more diminish so much that spending any more on long termism beyond that would be a mistake or at least no better than what what else we could do. I know you're still in the process of thinking about this and talking about this and writing it up. But yeah, how how are you uh, analyzing the questions and do you have any kind of preliminary uh, ideas?
1: Yeah, so I would say we, we certainly haven't reached any conclusions, and the purpose of the essay is more to raise the question and get other people thinking about it uh, and do a sort of survey of some possibilities. There are kind of two motivations for thinking about this. One is a worry that I think a lot of people have, uh, certainly a lot of philosophers about long-termism, is that it has this flavor of sort of demanding extreme sacrifices from us. And that maybe, for instance, if we really assign the same sort of moral significance to the welfare of, of people in the very distant future, uh, what that will require us to do is just work our fingers to the bone uh, and, and give up all of our sort of pleasures and leisure pursuits uh, in order to maximize the probability, uh, you know, at the eighth decimal place or something like that of, of humanity having a very good future. And this is actually, I mean, this is sort of a classic argument in in economics too. That you know, the reason that you need a discount rate, and more particularly the reason why you need a rate of pure time preference, you know, care about the further future less, just because it's the further future, is otherwise you end up with these unreasonable conclusions about what the savings rate should be.
0: And so one well, of the things that we want... Effectively, to, we should invest everything in the, in the future and, and kind of consume nothing now. So it would be like, take all of our GDP and just convert it into more factories to make factories kind of thing, rather than do anything that we value today.
1: Yeah, exactly. So so both in philosophy and in economics, people have, have thought, surely you can't demand that much of, of the present generation. And so one thing we wanted to think about is, how much does long-termism or how much does, does a sort of temporal neutrality and no rate of pure time preference actually demand of of the present generation in practice. The other question we wanted to think about is, insofar as the thing that we're trying to do in sort of global priorities research and in thinking about cause prioritization is find kind of the most important things and draw a circle around them and say, this is what humanity should be focusing on. Is long-termism the right circle to draw? Or is it maybe the case that there's like a couple of things that we can productively do to improve the far future, for instance, reduce existential risks, and maybe we can try to improve institutional decision making in, in certain ways. And, you know, other ways of improving the far future, well, either there's just not that much we can do, or all we can do is sort of try to make the, the present better in sort of intuitive ways, you know, produce more fair, just equal societies and, and hope that they make better decisions in future. Improve education. Yeah, ex- exactly where the sort of more useful thing to say is not, we should be optimizing the far future, but this more specific thing, okay, we should be trying to minimize existential risks and improve the quality of decision-making in you know, national and global political institutions or something like that.
0: There's two things there. One is kind of the demandingness issue of like, you know, should it be that we should spend almost all of our time trying to improve the very long-term future and uh, hang the present? And maybe also it sounded like you were alluding to, to the idea that uh, maybe there might, after you know, we've spent some amount of resources doing things that are specifically for the long term future, there might end up being quite a degree of alignment between stuff that makes the long term go well and things that makes the present world go well. Because if the way to figure out how to improve decisions that we'll make in, in the future with the institutions we have is probably just to improve those institutions and make people more reasonable and informed and better able to make decisions now and then hope that that will carry forward. And so doing things that would make things look better in 100 years or 1000 years might just end up looking awfully similar to just trying to improve how things are being run today.
1: Yeah, exactly. You could think of there being sort of a spectrum between radical long-termism and subtle long-termism, where radical long-termism, for instance, if you've sort of really took seriously the idea that it's all about maximizing the growth rate, maybe so that we can sort of start launching our space probes as soon as possible and minimize astronomical waste, get to all the stars before they vanish beyond the astronomical horizon. And so then the thing that we should be doing right now, the kind of long-termist thing to do, as you described, as like making factories to make factories. Every waking moment should be about you know, launching those first space probes as, as quickly as we can. So that's the kind of the, the radical long-termism. And then the more subtle long-termism says things like, well, the far future is very important. We don't know exactly what challenges we're going to face, what choices we're going to have to make. So the best thing we can do right now is try to equip people 50 or 100 years from now to face those challenges and make those choices better. And for instance, one way we can do that is by trying to improve things like social capital and social trust. So societies where there's a higher level of of trust have more effective institutions. People are more willing to make sort of sacrifices for the common good, for instance, more willing to wear masks during a pandemic, say. And that just has all sorts of unexpected payoffs um, in all sorts of situations. So what we should really be doing is, for instance, trying to make existing societies more fair and just and equal in order to improve social trust and social capital. And that's going to have all these downstream payoffs in terms of how we face these sort of unexpected challenges. And there, that's not to say that sort of long-termism is false or, or that long-termism makes no difference in practice, because it might be if we were just thinking about the next 100 years, we should be focused on factory-farmed animals or something like that. So maybe sort of thinking about the long-term future is shifting our focus between one of the things we might intuitively be doing and, and another – but the result is not sort of this crazy, demanding.
0: But in a way, that's very recognizable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Do you have any uh, yeah uh, kind of preliminary conclusions? Or would, would you like to guess where you might come down on these?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the second thing, I think nothing that I'd, I'd want to call a preliminary conclusion yet. I guess my own intuition is in that subtle long-termist direction that uh, we should we should think of of the future as. Very important, but also very unpredictable. And that means that most of what long termists should be doing, apart from a few sort of obvious cases like reducing existential risks, is trying to equip the next few generations to make choices better. And that involves mostly I mean, I think this is a sort of interesting question. You know, if we want people in 100 years from now to respond to challenges better, are the things that we're going to do to achieve that end mostly things that will make people, you know, between now and then better off? Or maybe we should sort of subject the next you know, couple of generations to lots of adversity so that they're, you know, forced to like build character and and uh, <laughs> you know learn how to confront and maybe we should, you know, put them all in like hunger game scenarios so that they can survive if uh, humanity's on the brink or something. But it, but intuitively I think, yeah, more prosperous, more fair, more just, more equal societies are just likely to handle challenges better. And so there's a kind of natural connection between trying to improve our ability to respond to challenges and just trying to improve the lives of of people alive today and in the near future.
0: I guess the, the kind of natural middle ground view is maybe humanity could spend a trillion dollars each year on stuff that is like quite targeted at the long term, things related to nuclear weapons and dangerous new technologies and building friendships between countries so they don't go to war and things like that. But then, you know, after we've like soaked up all of that learning returns, what's left is like stuff that is extremely recognizable, like trying to get governments to work better and making better decisions and generally making sure that people know what's going on in the world <laughs> and all this other stuff that we were kind of doing anyway, not maybe quite as much. And we should do a bit more of it. Uh, but it doesn't look really at all peculiar.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Although another thought that's worth adding to the mix, and this is this is an observation that I'm stealing, uh, at least approximately from from Carl Schulman, is that even that trillion dollars, the, the stuff that you're spending on uh, nuclear weapons and, and biological risks and so forth, you know, may not be that difficult to justify from a short-termist perspective. If you're just thinking about the next hundred years, there's already a pretty compelling case for worrying about nuclear weapons and biological risks and even artificial intelligence. So even there, maybe it is just sort of long-termism reshuffling the list of the top 10 priorities.
0: Converges with common sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Or taking something that was the 10th priority and making it the fifth, or taking something that's the third and moving it to the first. It, exactly. But this was all like stuff that we really should have been focusing on if we were smart anyway, yeah. Yeah, I prob- probably should stop describing all of this stuff as peculiar, because I'm not really sure that like any significant fraction of people thinks that trying to prevent a pandemic or trying to prevent a nuclear war actually is peculiar. <laughs> it actually is very common sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it seems in practice like one of those things where the big challenge is just to sort of get people marching in the direction that everybody agrees is the direction to march.
0: Another quick thing that I know uh, you've been uh, thinking and talking about at GPI is about kind of how large the expected value of the continued existence of human originating or or Earth originating civilization might be. As I understand it, you've been uh, kind of going back and forth uh, in the the group looking at historical trends in how well the world is going and how well we're cooperating and things like that. And maybe also thinking, you know, is there a tendency towards things being good rather than bad because intelligent agents that are kind of capable of dominating a planet are maybe more likely to go out and pursue the goals they have and try to make things better rather than just go out and engaging engaging in wanton destruction that probably probably wouldn't last very long if they were like that? Obviously a very speculative area, but uh, yeah, kind of what 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 sort of uh, considerations have featured prominently in, in, in those discussions?
1: Yeah, I think those two threads that you've identified have probably been certainly among the things that we've been most interested in. There is this kind of outside view perspective that says, if we want to form rational expectations about the value of the future, we should just think about the value of the present and look for trend lines over time. And then you might look at Wells, for instance, the sort of uh, Stephen Pinker stuff about declines in violence, um, or look at trends in global happiness, but you might also think about things, of course, like factory farming, right, and, and reach the conclusion that actually, even though human beings have been getting, you know, both more numerous and better off over time, sort of net effect of human civilization has been getting worse and worse and worse, you know, as we farm more and more chickens or something like that. Yeah. I'll say, you know, for my part, I'm a little bit skeptical about how much we can learn from this because we should expect sort of the sort of outside view, extrapolative reasoning, makes sense when you sort of expect to remain in roughly the same regime for, you know, the time time timeframe that you're interested in. But I think there's all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't expect that. For instance, you know, there's this sort of problem of like converting wealth into happiness that we just haven't really mastered, for instance, because, well, we don't have good enough drugs or something like that. So we know how to convert humanity's wealth and resources into cars, right? But, you know, we don't know how to like, make people sort of happy that they own a car or as happy as they should be or something like that. But that's in principle, you know, a solvable problem. Uh, Maybe it's just, you know, getting the right drugs or the right kind of psychotherapy or something like that. Uh, And in the long term, it, it seems very, you know, probable to me that we'll eventually solve that problem. And then there's other kinds of cases where the sort of outside view reasoning just looks kind of clearly like it's pointing you in the wrong direction. So for instance, like maybe the net value of human civilization has been... Trending really positively, humanity has been a big win for the world just because we're destroying so much habitat uh, that we're, you know, crowding out (laughs) wild animals who would otherwise be sort of living lives of horrible suffering. But obviously that trend line is sort of bounded, right? We can't uh, create, you know, negative amounts of wilderness. And so if that's the thing that's driving the trend line, you don't want to extrapolate that out to the year a billion or something and say, you know, well, things will be awesome in a billion years.
0: Yeah, I see. Interesting. Like, I I think it is quite possible, perhaps, that humanity has overall been negative because of all of the suffering that we've created in factory farming and and I guess, you know, other very negative places, perhaps like prisons, there's an enormous amount of suffering. And in these, like, you know, very specific locations, that that's enough to outweigh the broader, like, mild good that the rest of us get. But then you would have to extrapolate that just like, if you do this extrapolation, you're going to end up assuming that, you know, in a thousand years time, we're just going to have like a thousand times as many animals or something like that in factory farms, which just seems like extremely improbable, given that it's already borderline outmoded technology. So why on earth would you project that forward all that way?
1: Right. So the overall trend line is being driven by this sort of one phenomenon where that one phenomenon could just easily go away in a hundred years, maybe for just boring technological and economic reasons. Yeah. Again, it seems like extrapolating too far out in the future, to me, at least looks like a mistake. Yeah. And what, what do you think of the idea
0: that, uh, you know, we should uh, think that agents that are smart enough to, uh, to, to, to exist in, in huge numbers probably also are smart enough to kind of satisfy their preferences and, and maybe do things that are, that are moral rather than just things that are randomly good and bad?
1: Yeah. So I think there's sort of two possible arguments there, right? One is the idea that agents generally tend to pursue their own good. And the universal good is just something like the sum of individual goods. And so if maybe, you know, my actions tend to promote my good and just be neutral for everybody else's good. And similarly for everybody else, you know, all else being equal, you would expect the future to be good rather than bad because each agent individually tends to make their life good rather than bad. And maybe if we're, you know, sufficiently good at communicating and coordinating and maybe as we get more intelligent, we'll be able to bargain and trade more and more efficiently then maybe, uh, you know, a civilization full of self-interested agents could, you know. Do all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That relies on some assumptions, for instance, that you sort of remain in a situation where there's something like kind of parity of power between most of the individuals you're thinking about, you know, or maybe we shouldn't say remain in that situation because we were just talking about factory farming, right? That's an example of maybe the sort of human economy. uh, You have a bunch of agents who are each mostly self-interested, but they're, you know, constrained by other people's ability to do them harm or something or constrained by a legal framework that they've all agreed to. And that means that they are collectively able to reach efficient outcomes. But then there's this other set of beings who are just sort of totally powerless. And, you know, even if we're,
0: they get screwed. Yeah,
1: ex- exactly. And so maybe the future will be like that. And so the fact that we're all pursuing our own good is no guarantee that things will turn out well from the point of view of the universe. But then there's this other thought that maybe we have some some general motivation to pursue not just our own good, but the good. One way of thinking about this is maybe there's something sort of natural about empathy or at least something more natural about empathy than empathy is in some sense more natural than sadism. And certainly if you think that that tendency to care about the interests of other beings and their welfare, that that becomes sort of stronger over time and, and maybe we become, you know, our moral circle expands and Maybe as we get uh, richer and better able to satisfy our own needs, we're more able to turn our attention to other people's needs, then that would be a reason to think maybe more generally or more robustly that the future will be good. But I do find this sort of, I mean, I think there's something sort of paradoxical about this, because on the one hand, it seems very strange to think that there is such a thing as the good, Uh, there are real values out there, and they're sort of knowable. But there is no asymmetric tendency to, you know, it's like just as possible to end up in in a civilization where like most people are actively motivated to pursue the bad instead of the good. Right. It just (laughs) just seems sort of intuitively obvious that there is such a thing as the good that we have some asymmetric tendency to pursue the good rather than the bad. And on the other hand, if you sort of put on your hard nosed scientist hat, that just feels crazy that there would be this. Well, you can imagine motivational systems that are kind of optimized for anything. You can imagine an agent with any utility function you want, a reinforcement learning agent that has whatever conceivable reward function that they're optimizing for. So why should there be sort of written into the universe this uh, law that, you know, more agents tend to be motivated this way than the other way?
0: Yeah, I guess we need to bring in the evolutionary psychologists. Yeah, yeah. This actually like very nicely leads into the next section, which is going to be about moral uncertainty, which has uh, been one of your uh, main research interests over the years. We've talked about it a couple of times on the show, but yeah, can you just quickly recap what is the problem of moral uncertainty?
1: Yeah, so a lot of effort in philosophy and economics and elsewhere has gone into thinking about how we should respond to uncertainty about the state of the world, about empirical questions. So that's you know most of sort of standard decision theory. But certainly until recently, much less effort has gone into thinking about how we should respond to uncertainty about basic normative questions about uh, what things are good or bad. So when people talk about moral uncertainty in, in, in this context, in this literature, what they mean is uncertainty about those kind of fundamental value questions. You know, is the good that we should pr- be pursuing, is it happiness or preference satisfaction or human perfection or something like that?
0: Justice. Right. Equity. Yeah.
1: Or should we be maximizing, you know, the total amount of value in the world or the average or whatever in roughly the last 20 years, philosophers have really started to take this seriously and try to extend sort of standard uh, theories of decision-making under empirical uncertainty to fundamental moral uncertainty, and then also started sort of having this debate about whether you should actually do that and, and, and whether moral uncertainty is the thing that we should care about in the first place.
0: Yeah. Two angles that people come at this puzzle with are uh, called externalism and internalism. Can you explain uh, what those two views are and, and how they relate to moral uncertainty?
1: Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, internalism and externalism mean about 75 different things in, in, in philosophy. <laughs> um, but So this particular internalism yeah. and externalism distinction was was coined by a philosopher named Brian Weatherson. Well, the, the, the way that he conceives the distinction, or, or uh, maybe my uh, paraphrase of, of the way he conceives the distinction, is basically um, an internalist is someone who says normative principles, ethical principles, for instance— only kind of have normative authority over you to the extent that you believe them, right? So maybe there's an ethical truth out there, but, you know, if you justifiably believe some other ethical theory, right, some some false ethical theory, well, of course, the thing for you to do is go with your normative beliefs, right? Do the thing that you believe to be right. Where externalists think at least some normative principles, maybe all normative principles, have their authority kind of unconditionally. It doesn't depend on your beliefs. So, for instance, if Well, trolley problem, for instance, right? Should I kill one innocent person to save five innocent people? You know, the internalist says, suppose the right answer is you should kill the one to save the five, but you've just like read a lot of Kant and Foote and Thompson and so forth. And you become very convinced, maybe in this particular variant of the trolley problem, at least that, you know, the right thing to do is to not kill the one and, and let the five die. Well, clearly there's some sense in which you should do the thing that you believe to be right. Because what other guide could you have other than your own beliefs? Versus the externalist says, well, if the right thing to do is kill the one to save the five, then that's the right thing to do. What else is there to say about it?
0: Yeah. Can you tie back what those uh, different views uh, might imply about how you would resolve the issue of uh, moral uncertainty?
1: I mean, the, the externalist, at least the sort of most extreme externalist, basically says there is no issue of moral uncertainty. So what you ought to do is the thing that the true moral theory tells you to do. And it doesn't matter if you don't believe the true moral theory, or you're uncertain about it. And the internalist, of course, uh, is the one who says, well, no, like if you're uncertain, you have to account for that uncertainty somehow. And sort of the most extreme internalist is someone who says that whenever you're uncertain between two normative principles, you need to go looking for some sort of higher order normative principle that tells you how to handle that uncertainty.
0: So what are the problems with those perspectives? And uh, I guess, yeah, which one do you ultimately find more
1: compelling? So the objections to externalism uh, usually sort of start from just appeal to case intuitions that, well, look, uh, suppose that actually it's permissible to eat meat, but I have a, you know, 80% credence on the basis of really good arguments that it's morally wrong. Clearly, there's something defective about me if I go ahead and do this thing that I believe to be probably seriously wrong or something like that. You can also describe these cases where, for instance, what are called Jackson cases in the literature, where uh, I know for sure that either A or B is sort of objectively, morally the best thing to do, but both of them carry a lot of risk. And there's this other option, C, that's nearly as good as A, according to the theory that says do A, and nearly as good as B, according to the theory that says do B. And so it just seems, you know, really intuitive. And this is what like, expected value reasoning would tell you that you should hedge your best and choose C. sort of minimize your expected shortfall or something like that. So that's one argument. Another argument is just to say, well, most most people who describe themselves as as externalists in this literature still think that people's empirical beliefs make a difference to what they ought to do. If I think that this coffee cup might be poisoned, even if it in fact isn't, I nevertheless shouldn't drink from it, I shouldn't offer it to you, right? So, So clearly my empirical beliefs and uncertainties make a difference to what I ought to do. And then there's a sort of burden of proof on the externalist to explain what's the difference between our empirical beliefs and our our moral beliefs.
0: I guess someone could try to reject that and say, if the coffee isn't poisoned, then you should drink it, even if you think that it is poisoned. But then there's something that's kind of obtuse about that answer. It's like, okay, well, all right, I agree in some sense that's true, but like you're not really grappling with the situation in which we really find ourselves in in the real world. So what is the point of this kind of deliberately (laughs) point-missing statement?
1: Yeah, I mean, the way that I think about this is... In any of these cases or in, uh, so for instance, the like uh, classic kind of empirical Jackson case where there's a doctor trying to decide whether to treat a patient and she doesn't know which condition the patient has, right? And there's one drug that would perfectly cure condition one, another that would perfectly cure condition two, but they're both sort of fatal if, if the patient has the other condition. And then there's a drug C that would, you know, nearly perfectly cure both conditions. And to me, the argument is something like, if you were in fact in that doctor's position, question one, what would you do? And obviously, any reasonable person would prescribe drug C. And then the second question is, do you think that that's just a sort of arbitrary, irrational, maybe sort of spasmodic uh, thing that you're inclined to do? (laughs) Um, Or do you think that you're somehow being guided by reasoning or guided by norms when you make that decision? And it just seems totally incredible to me to not concede that that decision is guided by norms or guided by reasoning. And I think you can say exactly the same thing in, in, in the sort of normative case.
0: So that's the problem with externalism. What are the weaknesses of the internalist view?
1: Yeah, so uh, probably the biggest weakness in my mind is, well, two things. One one is it's vulnerable to the sort of regress problem, where the most extreme externalist says, if you are uncertain between, you know, two normative principles, N1 and N2, you need a higher order normative principle, but then intuitively... It's not like once we get from first-order ethics to second-order ethics, now the cloud's open and everything's clear and we know what those principles are. There's uncertainty and debate there, too, and so we need third-order principles and so on and so on and so on. And there are some sort of felicitous conditions, like Phil Trammell has a nice paper that describes somewhat general conditions under which you can get this kind of nice convergence thing that happens as you go up to higher and higher-order norms. But in the general case where you have credence in kind of the full range of higher order theories that might seem reasonable, it seems like you just end up stuck and you're you're never able to reach a kind of norm-guided decision. And so that looks bad.
0: Okay, so the issue is you need some principle to you know, evaluate and aggregate your different underlying moral philosophies that, that could plausibly be true. So you need this principle of moral uncertainty. How do you evaluate those? But then you're going to be uncertain about the different principles by which you would aggregate. So you've got uncertainty about moral uncertainty. And so you need some higher level principle to like figure out how to aggregate at that level and on and on and on. It would be nice if like each level you went up, you kind of like converged on some common view where regardless of like the specifics of exactly what you believed, you, you ended up at the same place. And I guess an alternative thing would be that you just got to some like bedrock level where there was like no more uncertainty. And, and at that stage, you could just say, well, now you just should do the thing that the correct theory says, and, and you would stop the regress that way. But it's possible that neither of those two escape hatches is available.
1: Yeah, exactly. Maybe nobody, as far as I know, has thought about like 11th order meta norms. But maybe once we get up to the 11th order norms, it'll just be obvious what the true 11th order norm is and we can, we can stop. But that doesn't seem particularly plausible. So that's kind of the negative argument against internalism that leads you into this regress. And then I think there's a sort of positive argument for some kind of externalism, which which says roughly, okay, what is the question we're asking here? Maybe we're asking, what's the rational thing to do under uncertainty in general? And what we want is some theory, some criterion of rationality that says, you know, a choice is rational if and only if phi, where phi is some formula that might make reference to the agent's beliefs might make reference to all sorts of things, but that's the sort of criterion for whether you're being rational. And then whatever that theory is, whatever the content of phi is, you can imagine an agent who doesn't believe that theory, doesn't believe that that's the criterion of rationality, but nevertheless, insofar as that is the theory of rationality, well, that's the theory of rationality, right? You're rational if and only if phi, whether or not you believe that you're rational if and only if phi. So that's just to say, if there's any kind of true theory at all about this normative concept we're investigating... At some point, it has to be a theory that you could disbelieve, but nevertheless, it still applies to you.
0: Yeah, what do you make of this regress problem? Is that like a serious problem or or might there be a resolution that will allow us to be internalists to to some degree?
1: Yeah, I have a paper under review on this exact question where the place that I come down is, is what I describe anyway as a kind of moderate form of externalism. So roughly, I think that the question we're interested in is how to respond rationally to uncertainty. And there is going to be some basic principle of rational decision-making under, under uncertainty, whether that's maximize expected value or expected choice worthiness, or whether it's the stochastic dominance principle, that ultimately that is just the criterion of, of rationality. And if you don't believe it, nevertheless, it's the criterion of rationality that applies to you. But that still allows that what you ought to do depends on your beliefs about your reasons, including your beliefs about the sort of value of the possible outcomes of your options. And those those beliefs or your uncertainty That depends not just on your empirical uncertainties, but also on your sort of first-order moral uncertainties. So so basically where I end up is saying, you know, rather than what what the, the sort of extreme externalists want to do and just say empirical uncertainty, yes, normative uncertainty, no, I think what we should say is when we're asking the question about rationality, it's empirical uncertainty, yes, that matters. Moral uncertainty, yes, that matters. But uncertainty about the principles of rationality, no, that doesn't matter because, Whatever the principles of rationality are, they're the principles of rationality, and they determine whether an action is rational or not.
0: Okay, so you're going to have like a a mixed view. We're going to be an internalist about empirical uncertainty, an internalist about moral uncertainty, but then an externalist about like the basic principles of rationality. Is there like a compelling reason you can give to take one view in some cases and the other view in the other cases?
1: So the argument is basically, well, those two arguments I just gave. Number one, it lets you avoid the regress problem. But number two, I think the more significant, compelling argument is insofar as we're asking a question about rationality, the answer ultimately is going to be a criterion of rationality. And whatever that criterion turns out to be, that's the criterion, despite the fact that people are capable of of doubting or, or denying it. The reason that we go externalist about rationality is that we're asking a question about rationality, right? Rather than, you know, if the question you're asking is, which option will produce the most value, then yeah, you know, the, the,
0: that's an externalist question. Yeah,
1: right, right. So so that question it doesn't depend on your beliefs at all, right? It just depends on what the true moral theory is and the true state of the world. But when we're asking a question about rationality, that just depends on the true theory of rationality plus what the true theory of rationality says is is sort of part of the criterion, which is your beliefs probabilities about empirical questions and normative questions.
0: Okay, yeah, so that actually makes a whole bunch of sense to me. Do lots of other people accept this view?
1: It's not like I've had a flood of emails saying, oh, you've, you know, you've convinced me uh, there's, there's no <laughs> more problem here. Nailed it. Um, I think very few people want to take the extreme externalist view that no kind of moral or normative uncertainty ever, you know, should sort of figure in our practical deliberations about what to do. And I think very many people also worry about the sort of regress problem and do think that there has to be some norm where, where we pound our fists. So I think I think something in the vicinity of this view a lot of people would at least be open to.
0: I guess, yeah, some people approach this whole thing from a different angle, where they don't think of ethics as being, you know, these external, eternal truths that come with the universe, like, say, laws of physics. They think of it maybe as just like a reflective equilibrium that they reach about their preferences or a way of describing their personal values rather than, you know, pre-existing truths that predate them should they still care about this issue of moral uncertainty? Like, does it make sense to talk about moral uncertainty there? It seems like that's going to be related to this externalism-internalism thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So there's, I mean, kind of a couple ways of of taking that attitude. So one option is to be what's called a a non-cognitivist about metaethics, where you think that ethical judgments actually just aren't claims about The world at all, you know, not claims, for instance, that some actions have a property of objective rightness. Rather, they're ways of expressing attitudes, for instance. So like the very simple kind of hackneyed version of this view says, when I say that giving to the poor is right, that's really just another way of saying, hooray for giving to the poor. And if I say that kicking puppies is wrong, that's just another way of saying, boo kicking puppies. There's a sort of lively debate about whether non cognitivists, people who take, you know, more sophisticated versions of of that view can even accommodate the phenomenon of moral uncertainty in the first place.
0: (laughs) It's like saying you're barracking for the irrational soccer team to barrack for.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well and and you know, normally, well, like boos and hoorays or or attitudes of approval or disapproval more generally are are not well, they're not truth app, they're not the kinds of things that can be true or false. And so it seems like they're not the kind of things we could be uncertain about. So we need a sort of proxy for uncertainty people generally think, well, there is this sort of clear phenomenology of moral uncertainty. People feel uncertain about moral questions. And so even the non-cognitivist has to come up with some explanation for that or something that sort of acts like uncertainty, even if it really isn't. And then there's also the kind of cognitivist anti-realist, for, you know, where the sort of uh, hackneyed version of view is, for instance, something is right if it accords with a certain subset of my preferences. Exactly how you distinguish the moral preferences from other preferences is sort of open, open for debate. But there again, I think you you feel some pressure, at least, to account for the apparent phenomenon of people being uncertain about moral questions. One way that, that could be is if you think, well, OK, my moral values are grounded in my preferences, but they're something like the preferences that I would have under a certain kind of reflection, you know, so I know that, for instance, sometimes I am inconsiderate uh, of other people's interests. But I kind of wish, you know, if I, if I sat down and reflected and thought about how my actions were affecting them, I know that I would form a preference to be more considerate. And so my actual deep down moral values are those preferences I would have if I were you know, sufficiently reflective and had time to think about it and so forth. And so then that's something I can be uncertain about. I can be uncertain what my preferences would be under that kind of reflection. And so maybe that's a, a way in which these kind of uh, anti-realists should still be interested in moral uncertainty. I see.
0: They'd be interested in moral uncertainty in as much as people find it hard to introspect and really reach some like deep, fully informed, reflective equilibrium about like what is it that they value morally. They could think about it for a very long time and hear all of the different arguments and, and so on.
1: Yeah. I mean, a simple way to think about this is we probably all have the experience of doing things that we regret for kind of moral reasons, you know, treating people badly yeah. and realizing afterwards and, and and wishing that we hadn't done it. And maybe if part of what you're doing mm-hmm. is trying to avoid those regrets, avoid ending up in a situation where you feel bad about things that you've done and you can't predict in advance mm-hmm. uh, with perfect precision what things you'll feel bad about, you might want to hedge your bets a little bit and say, well, this feels like the sort of thing I might have regrets about later on, and so I'm not going to do it.
0: Yeah. So all of this moral uncertainty thinking, to what extent do the different leading approaches to it have different practical recommendations for what people involved in global priorities research or effective altruism ought to do or recommend that, that other people do? Does it have much like known practical relevance yet?
1: Well, so there's a couple things to say here. One is, if you take these kind of moral uncertainty skeptical views, either you're an externalist or, or there's this uh, view that says, well, you should just act on the one moral theory that you think is most plausible. Then there are various arguments that trade on maybe small probabilities of kind of extreme moral theories being correct arguably the sort of insects case is one example of that so if you think i have you know some small but non-zero credence that insects are morally considerable or morally statist and you know if they are that's so extremely important that it sort of swamps everything else now it's a little bit unclear whether that's you know really moral uncertainty or just empirical uncertainty about whether insects have certain kinds of experiences or something but something like that of course if you're not trying to hedge your moral bets then you're not going to find those arguments about sort of low probability moral considerations compelling If you do want to treat moral uncertainty kind of like empirical uncertainty and, for instance, do something like expected value maximization, I think, unfortunately, the, the kind of state of things at the moment is that we have a bunch of sort of interesting theoretical ideas about how to respond to moral uncertainty, but they're all just very, very difficult to apply in practice. So, for example, one of the ideas at the cutting edge here that uh, Will McCaskill and, and Toby Ord and Owen Cotton Barrett have developed is uh, the sort of idea of variance normalization that you, uh, you know, you want to know how to make comparisons between the value scales of two theories. Well, what you should do is look at the, you know, value or choiceworthiness assignment that each theory gives to sort of all the options in some big set. And then you measure the variance of those two choice worthiness assignments. And then you stretch or contract the scales so that each theory now has a variance of, say, one or something. And then that tells you how to make comparisons between the scales. And there's some interesting, potentially compelling sort of theoretical arguments for doing things that way. But then to actually get practical implications out of that, you have to, first of all, make a list of potentially all the conceivable practical options that any agent might ever face and figure out the choice worthiness of each of them according to a given moral theory. And then usually because that set is infinite, you need something called a measure that tells you how to weight different subsets of this infinite set. And then you need to actually calculate the variance and all this before you actually try to apply it to the decision situation in front of you. My general impression at the moment is that there's just this sort of very big gap and it seems like a kind of bigger gap with respect to moral uncertainty than empirical uncertainty between the kind of theoretical cutting edge ideas and the practical use cases that we'd really like to apply these tools to.
0: All right. We've been at the philosophy for a couple of hours now, and I guess we're yeah we're, we're heading towards the finishing line here. So I'd uh, like to ask a slightly more practical question, uh, see, see if any of your research has kind of influenced the priorities that, that you have. So given all of your research and everything you've learned over the last couple of years, and I, and I guess over your, your entire career in philosophy, imagining that you, you know, won the lottery and won billions of dollars and decided you wanted to spend it to improve the world as, as much as possible. What do you think your kind of multi-billion dollar philanthropic foundation might look like? And maybe how, if at all, might it differ, say, from the Open Philanthropy Project?
1: Yeah, I think, unfortunately, the boring answer is I don't think it would differ very much. I don't have radically heterodox views within sort of EA circles about what we should be prioritizing. I guess, sort of self-servingly, I think there's a lot of stuff we don't know the answer to. And so, you know, that multi-billion dollar foundation should spend a bunch of money on research. I think clearly existential risks should be pretty high on the priority list. And I think various things to do with Norms and institutions and values, for instance, build better institutions for uh, international cooperation on not just catastrophic risks, but problems like climate change, like non-extinction level pandemics, all the sorts of things that might sort of make a long term difference to, you know, whether humanity uh, flourishes or doesn't. None of that is terribly unconventional.
0: Yeah, Actually, I think that's my view as well. If I had any kind of really heterodox ideas for Open Phil, I probably probably already would have told them. But let's say you know if we were to come back and, and ask you in uh, ten years' time, and and you gave a different answer because of things that you'd learned in the in the intervening time. Yeah, what, what do you think is like some of the likely possible reasons that you might have really changed your mind?
1: I think the most likely thing is just discovering a, a new way to really usefully spend money other than. Existential risk reduction and research and, well, a lot of these sort of norms and values things are just sort of figuring out where philanthropic money or or altruistically motivated agents can really get some traction, where there are leverage points, uh, for instance, in government. And uh, it seems reasonably plausible to me that we'll just like learn quite a bit about that in the next 10 years or 20 years or something And so there'll be maybe something of the scale of existential risks where we would just want to say we want to be pouring like a very substantial part of our budget into
0: this. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense. Are there any important philosophical questions that you think we might plausibly make progress on in the next 10 years? Or are they likely to be probably uh, longer term projects?
1: Yeah, I I think it's, it's always very hard, even retrospectively, to say whether we've made any progress in philosophy. I want to say, That we have, I mean, particularly thinking about moral or normative questions, lots of things to do with human equality, the abolition of of slavery, women's equality, for instance, that has been genuine moral progress. And whether or not it's been sort of abstract philosophical arguments that have ultimately moved the needle, certainly philosophers have had something to do with it, you know, women's rights, for instance, or, you know, Singer uh, with respect to animal ethics. So yeah, I guess I'm reasonably optimistic that moral philosophers have contributed to moral progress, whether or not that's from you know the discovery of, of abstract moral truths um, or, or something else. And then, yeah, I think there's room for us to make progress. I feel cautiously optimistic about making progress in the short term on among other things, these sort of epistemic questions where there is, among other things, a sort of philosophical angle, you know, thinking about, say, inductive reasoning when when uh, we're sort of anticipating big structural breaks in the world or things like that, reasoning under unawareness where there are possibilities that we just haven't even imagined. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about progress there. And then in the long term, maybe making uh, philosophical progress on things like consciousness and being able to really answer questions like, what are the the, the physical or functional of substrates of experience and being able to say for sure whether insects or or simple artificial intelligences or or whatever have experiences okay let's do a little
0: update on the state of uh, global priorities research i suppose uh, especially for anyone in the audience who's uh, who's been listening for the last couple of hours and is thinking you know damn i'd lo- i'd love to do the kind of work that this guy is doing how is the field of global priorities research progressing? I think a couple of years ago, it was kind of a, a new name for an agglomeration of different research agendas, uh, and the number of people involved was was really pretty small. But my impression is that the number is, you know, really uh, growing in, in leaps and bounds. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So we are trying to sort of keep our finger on the pulse, both by sort of staying in touch with academics elsewhere who are doing work that, you know, we think of as, as sort of at the core of, of global priorities research. But also, and, and more particularly, by kind of cultivating the pipeline of up-and-coming undergraduates, master students, and particularly sort of PhD students uh, who, who are interested in, in doing GPR, and that pipeline has just been very, very strong and, and very promising in both philosophy and economics, and, and particularly it's uh, gratifying to see in economics because, well, GPR and effective altruism sort of got a head start in philosophy through people like Peter Singer, Toby Ord, Will McCaskill. And so I think economics is a few years behind in terms of just the number of people working on these questions around cost prioritization. But yeah, there's a a great pipeline of really smart PhD students doing really exciting work. And we're, uh, I think, having some success at getting established academics to work on these questions and think about them seriously as well. And in the longer term, sort of thinking about branching out into other fields and trying to get people in, say, political science or history or psychology interested in these questions too
0: yeah what sort of folks in the in the possible listening audience might be a good fit for the sorts of vacancies that are coming up now and in the next couple of years
1: well so at gpi and and uh you know other other places where global priorities research is happening at the moment uh, you know really like hiring is in philosophy and economics and particularly for, you know, people who are finishing PhDs. So the sort of obvious, uninspiring answer is if you're, you know, working on a PhD in philosophy or economics, uh, you'd be a good fit for global priorities research in philosophy or economics. There's also, for people earlier on in the pipeline, for instance, uh, GPI has been hiring uh, pre-doctoral researchers, people just finishing up their undergrad or maybe just finishing up a master's. So anybody sort of at that stage might want to think about applying for that. And then thinking in the longer term, I guess... I think we, we do expect that there's a sort of wider range of disciplines that have important things to, to contribute here. So I think maybe someone who is, uh, say, an you know, early undergraduate or, or in high school might also think about whether they have you know, some interest or proclivity for some of these other fields like quantitative historical research, like political science, uh, you know, building institutions that better serve the, the public good or something like that. And that might be a sort of route to, to contributing as well.
0: Yeah. what do you think is kind of uh, most distinctive about the uh, the office culture at the Global Priorities Institute?
1: Uh, I mean, it's hard to say particularly now because we haven't had an office <laughs> culture uh, in the literal sense for a little over a year. I think compared to other academic research organizations, we really stress sort of coordination and making sure that we're thinking together about what the most important questions are and that we're directing our research energies towards those questions that we've identified as most important. So a kind of a failure mode that, uh, well, Hillary Graves, who's, who's our director, uh, has been very worried about and, and has really focused on kind of avoiding, is just everybody being kind of nerd sniped by whatever random questions uh, feel exciting. And so we go off and maybe not the highest priority directions and don't really coordinate and, and focus on, on, on topics. And so we, re- we really try to sort of maintain focus and, and, and mission alignment. I guess another thing that's distinctive compared to other academic organizations is an emphasis on actual research collaborations, so particularly in philosophy. Uh, we do more co-authoring than the typical philosopher. And then finally, I guess I would say we're just sort of open to doing sort of weird experimental stuff. Like we've, you know, spent a while trying to develop a, a somewhat uh, arcane scoring system for potential research projects. And we, you know, go through scoring exercises to, to try to figure out what we want to do next. And and we... Uh, yeah, we're, we're just are sort of open to being sort of weird and experimental <laughs> in, in our culture in a way that I think academic organizations at least typically aren't.
0: Yeah, it's not a super conformist group. Yeah. I guess the people who aren't doing an academic PhD, but are interested in, in supporting the field, what kind of uh, non-research roles uh, do you also need? I'm guessing there's, you know, possibly communications people, I guess, organizations and operations folks uh, would, would also would also be really useful.
1: Yeah. So at the moment, we have a fairly robust operations team uh, Varies varies in size depending on who you count, but but three to five people who support GPI's operations. And I think we've benefited from having people who are enthusiastic about GPI's mission and believe in what we're doing and, and understand, are interested in what the researchers are doing, and yeah, just in all sorts of ways provide really good and, and useful support. So certainly uh, somebody who's interested in working in operations in an EA organization, I think... Research organizations are one place where operations support can be really crucial and can make a big difference to whether researchers are able to be productive and, and uh, yeah answer the questions they're trying to answer.
0: Yeah, I guess for people who want to keep track of uh, jobs at GPI, obviously uh, you list them all on, on your website. And uh, I, think, I think we also list, I think, all of your vacancies on our job board at 80,000hours.org uh, slash jobs. So uh, if you sign up to our newsletter, you get periodic updates when we update the job board. If people want to donate to fund more global priorities research, I guess there'll be kind of a guide to the research agenda for the Global Priorities Institute on on your website. Are there any other options that people should possibly uh, have in mind if they're scouting out different opportunities?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you can donate directly to GPI. And of course, uh, we'd we'd be very happy if people choose to do that. You can also donate to the EA Long-Term Future Fund, which, if I'm not much mistaken, uh, funds global priorities research, among other things. I suppose you could donate to the, the Forethought Foundation. I'm not sure if they accept donations. Uh, but I would, I would imagine they do. Yeah, off the top of my head, I'm sure there are, there are other options. I'm not. I mean, there are there are lots of of research organizations out there that are doing things in the vicinity of global priorities research, thinking about the long run future, for instance, um, that are doing great work and and uh, would benefit from financial support.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess, of course, there's a fair bit of like, kind of direct or indirect uh, global priorities research that goes on at Open Philanthropy. Mm-hmm. But uh, having billions of dollars in the bank, I don't know that they take more any more donations. Yeah, <laughs> or at least no, I'm not much, right. I guess they don't take donations unless they're on the scale of billions of dollars. Yeah. So that's probably cuts down the audience somewhat. Okay. Uh, yeah, you've been uh, super generous with your time, but I um, had a couple of uh, more personal questions uh, to finish off. Sure. When I was doing some background research for this interview, I uh, found some videos of you on YouTube, I guess, seemingly involved with uh, very competitive debating. And it it sounded like you'd been involved in competitive debating when you were younger and then gone on to start judging some debates. And I saw this uh, crazy video of a a Lincoln-Douglas debate in which people were just like, I mean, people say that I talk fast on this podcast, but these debaters were just like going blisteringly quickly through a series of arguments to the point where I could barely understand what they were saying. And I think you were a judge in one of these debates. Mm. What is going on with that? (laughs) Are are people learning good thinking or debating skills from these competitions?
1: Yeah. So I was a competitive debater for a couple of years in high school and then coached for many years after graduating, basically, uh, until I, I left grad school and I, I needed to sort of make a break and focus on, on research. But yeah, in the United States in particular, competitive debate has gone in this uh, sort of very weird esoteric direction where the thing that's sort of most striking about it to outsiders is how fast everybody talks. And I mean, the reason for that is, is pretty straightforward. You have speech time, so you have six minutes for your first speech, and then you know, the other debater has seven minutes for the next speech and so forth and you just want to make as many arguments as you can in that period of time and you have judges who mostly were competitive debaters before and so they they learned to understand more or less imperfectly people talking at 300 350 words a minute and so yeah you're just able to say more things and and the judges are mostly able to understand it in terms of whether it you know has sort of pedagogical value i mean i i had a you know amazing experience In a high school debate myself and an amazing experience coaching it, I guess I would say that competitive debate creates a kind of stylized form of argumentation where, for instance, often there are arguments that are like bad, but you can make them very quickly and explaining why they're bad takes a long time. And so it's, you know, it's a good argument within the game of debate, right? Because it forces your opponent to waste a lot of their time explaining why why your bad argument is bad. And I think there are debaters who understand things like this, sort of understand the limitations of the activity and understand that arguments that succeed in, in competitive debate aren't necessarily good arguments. And those debaters can get an enormous amount out of the activity. And you have the, one of the things that was really rewarding to me is you have high school students going out and reading, well, not just Kant and Locke and Hobbes and, and Mill, but reading contemporary philosophers, reading Nick Bostrom, among other people, reading Christine Korsgaard, and in many cases are really understanding and be very thoughtful and, and uh, taking away a lot from it. But I think there, there also is, if, if you sort of don't recognize that it is a kind of stylized argumentative game and that the arguments that are succeeding in debate aren't necessarily good arguments and that there's a sort of higher level of academic rigor that you can ultimately aspire to, then I think it can be sort of intellectually problematic.
0: Yeah, poor training for cases where you actually care whether you're getting the right answer or, or not. Yeah. It seems like a weakness of the scoring system that you get lots of points by just like really quickly kind of mumbling out <laughs> arguments that aren't super persuasive necessarily. One, you could have like a point scoring for rhetoric. So it's like, do people make the arguments in a in a compelling way that, you know, an ordinary person in a speech might find interesting or would be able to to follow? Mm-hmm. And maybe also like, do the judges find the arguments to be compelling? as stated, or can they themselves think of counter arguments uh, that that you haven't addressed? Maybe that would like return the speech style back to something that would be perhaps a bit more useful in in ordinary life.
1: Yeah, well, I think it depends on what skill you're trying to train. So if you're trying to train public speaking, then certainly competitive Lincoln-Douglas debate or policy debate, as is practiced in the United States, you know, isn't the way to do that, right? It doesn't teach public speaking skills. And there are other activities like, uh, well, speech, like oratory, for instance, that, that that do teach that. If you're trying to teach argumentation, well, then the fact that we sort of don't care how rhetorically elegant or, or or persuasive a debater is sort of serves that goal, right? Because, you know, we only care about the arguments. And there's a sort of norm that a lot of debaters accept uh, or a lot of judges accept of kind of non-intervention that I think this is a bad argument, but it's the job of the other debater to explain why it's a bad argument. I'm not going to sort of step in and and, and say that it's a bad argument. And yeah, I guess my take is it does train argumentation and critical thinking skills and and thinking on your feet um, and intellectual creativity, as long as you sort of recognize the limitations of what you're doing and recognize that if you, for instance, go into academia or even when you're, uh, you know, an undergraduate in in college and you're engaged in kind of genuine truth-seeking There are ideas and skills and knowledge that you can take from competitive debate that are useful there, but you're not doing the same thing, right? And the things that work in competitive debate don't always work in truth-seeking contexts.
0: Yeah. Have you seen any people do really well at debating, but potentially learn bad epistemics, learn bad lessons about how to think and and how to argue? Because they've just learned this kind of persuasive, throwout argument style, and that maybe uh, holds them back in, in in other lines of work.
1: Yeah, I guess I would say the thing that I've more commonly seen is people who are very good at the game of debate and just aren't particularly sort of interested in the actual issues that are being debated. Or, you know, maybe they, they sort of learn some some philosophy, for instance, because they need it to, to win debate rounds, but they're just not that that interested in philosophy. And, you know, if you're, if you're not interested in the subject matter intrinsically, then you're just not going to become good at thinking about it and then there certainly are people who sort of learn things in a superficial way for debate purposes and don't immediately recognize the limitations of what they learned or, or how superficial their their understanding is but i think there are there are also plenty of people who yeah really do find the the, the questions that that they're debating uh, sort of genuinely interesting and do want to go and 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 learn and think about those questions independently of just trying to win debate rounds
0: Okay, I'll uh, I'll stick up a video to uh, a, a link to that video if people want to see the extremely fast speaking uh, debate style. I hadn't seen that one before, despite despite doing debating at, at high school myself. Just another question I was gonna I wanted to ask before we finish. Yeah, what is your favorite or perhaps like funnest philosophical problem or thought experiment? Maybe one that doesn't necessarily have anything in particular to do with global priorities research.
1: Yeah, so a problem that for whatever reason I've always found just really compelling or fascinating. There's this whole family of philosophical paradoxes around what are called self-reference, where the famous example is, is the liar paradox. The sentence is false. And there's, there's a thousand different paradoxes in this vicinity. So a puzzle that I've found particularly compelling uh, since, since I encountered this in undergrad is, is what's called Barry's paradox. And the paradox goes like this. There are some expressions in the English language that refer to numbers. For instance, one or two plus two. Right, refers to the number four. Um, and of course, there are some expressions that, that don't. And, you know, there's a, a finite number of expressions of English of any given length, say, less than 100 characters long when you write them down. And so there's a finite number of, say, natural numbers that can be referred to by English expressions less than 100 characters long. So now consider the following number. The smallest number not named by any English expression of fewer than 100 characters There should be some such number, right? We can, you know, one, okay, we can name that in less than 100 characters, two, and so forth, right, but we're eventually going to encounter one that you can't name uh, in fewer than 100 characters, except that expression, or at least the sort of original Barry version of it, the smallest natural number not named by any English expression of fewer than 100 characters is only 93 characters long. (laughs) Uh, And so, in fact, there must be the smallest number not referred to by any English expression of less than 100 characters, but also that very number is referred to by an English expression of of uh, less than 100 characters, namely that expression that I just gave.
0: So, so that rules out that one. But then what about the next higher one? That's now the new one that will be referred to by this.
1: Yeah, I guess. But but then that's out, right? If that's what that, you know, 93 character expression. Yeah. Refers to. So, so, yeah, I, I can't say exactly why. But but, you know, among all the sort of self-reference paradoxes, that's the one that always just sort of blew my mind.
0: We'll, uh, we'll stick up a link to uh, maybe a Wikipedia article or, or, or another page about that self-reference paradox and, and maybe some others as well. All right. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Christian Tarsney. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Chris. Thanks, Rob. Just in case you don't know, uh, we at 80,000 Hours have an email newsletter, uh, which you could potentially find useful. Uh, if you sign up to that, we will notify you when we update our job board, uh, which lists hundreds of potentially uh, high-impact job vacancies, uh, as well as stepping stone roles that might help you have more impact in future. Of course, uh, the earlier that you find out about those, uh, those new opportunities, uh, the less likely you are to miss an application deadline uh, for a role that you'd really love to get. We'll also email you about our new research uh, into potentially pressing problems and ways to solve them uh, as that work comes out. Emails go out to the list about two or three times a month, so it's not exactly overwhelming. You can join by putting in your email at 80,000hours.org slash newsletter. And if you've listened all the way to the end of an episode uh, this intense, uh, you seem like exactly the kind of person who would enjoy being on the list. All right. Uh, The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering for today's episode was by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by Sophia Davis-Fogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.